Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and the tragedy of happy birthday lock-in. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. If you know of one person involved in the effective altruism community, there is a decent chance that it is the Oxford philosopher Will McCaskill. His previous appearances on the show were in episode 68 on the paralysis argument, whether we're at the hinge of history and Will's new priorities, as well as episode 17 on moral uncertainty, utilitarianism, and how to avoid being a moral monster. Those first two episodes were audience favorites, and I imagine the McCaskill charm will make this one a favorite as well. Here, we preview Will's upcoming book and discuss mental health, work-life balance, how contingent good moral values are, and the huge changes that we've seen in the effective philanthropy space in recent years. Speaking of books, here at 80,000 Hours, we recently started a free book giveaway, which you can take advantage of at 80,000hours.org slash freebook. There's three books on offer. The first is The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity by Oxford philosopher Toby Ord, which we discussed with him in episode 72. That one is about the greatest threats facing humanity today and the strategies that we can use to hopefully safeguard our future. The second book is called 80,000 Hours, Find a Fulfilling Career That Does Good by Benjamin Todd. That's a book version of our guide to planning your career. And the third is Doing Good Better, Effective Altruism and How You Can Make a Difference by today's guest, Will McCaskill. We pay for the shipping on those, of course, and can send physical books to almost anywhere in the world. If, like me, you prefer audiobooks, though, then we can offer you an audio copy of The Precipice, though unfortunately not the other two just yet. The only thing you need to do to get one of those free books is sign up to our email newsletter, On average, we send about one newsletter email a week, usually letting you know about some new research about high-impact careers that's gone up on the website, or about a new batch of job opportunities that's going up on our job board. The email newsletter is pretty great, but if you decide you don't like it, you can always unsubscribe. And indeed, if you just want a book, I give you approval to immediately unsubscribe after ordering your book. That is totally legit. We actually launched this giveaway a bit earlier in the year, but we had to delay announcing it to all of you because the offer was so popular that our poor book orderers were flat out shipping all the books that people had already asked for and likely weren't in a position to handle the influx from all of you podcast listeners. But fortunately, that group has increased their capacity and so are now standing by to quickly turn around your requests. If you'd like to take advantage of that and get one of those books, then just head to 80,000hours.org slash freebook. Of course, we'd be more than happy for you to tell your friends about the giveaway if one or maybe maybe more than one of them might be interested in getting one of those books. All right, without further ado, I bring you Will McCaskill. Today, I'm speaking with Will McCaskill, who will be well known to many people as a co-founder of the Effective Autism community. Officially, Will wears many different hats, including Associate Professor of Philosophy at Oxford University, Director of the Forethought Foundation for Global Priorities Research, and now an advisor to the Future Fund. In his academic capacity, Will has published in philosophy journals such as Mind, Ethics, and the Journal of Philosophy. And in his capacity as an entrepreneur, he co-founded Give What We Can, the Center for Effective Altruism, and our very own 80,000 Hours, uh, where he remains a trustee on our various different boards. He's the author of Doing Good Better, a co-author of Moral Uncertainty. And in August, his third book will be out, titled What We Owe the Future, and this time covering long-termism. Uh, This is also his third appearance on the show, the previous ones being episode 68, when we talked about the paralysis argument and whether we're at the hinge of history, and episode 17, when we spoke about moral uncertainty and utilitarianism. Thanks for returning to the podcast, Will. Thanks so much for having me on. I hope we're going to get to talk about how the effective altruism community has been progressing in leaps and bounds over the last few years, and in what directions you would ideally like to nudge it. Uh, But first, yeah, what have you been up to since you were last on the podcast in uh, January 2020? It feels like a lifetime ago. Feels like a century ago, yeah. So the big thing was writing this book, What We Are the Future. So I'd been planning to write it for 
a couple of years before that, I'd been working on it kind of part-time in the background. And then basically when the pandemic hit, I thought, well, there's just never going to be a better opportunity in my life for writing a book. Yeah. And I really just wiped everything else off my plate and went into a, a book-related hole yeah. um, for what turned out to be two years. Right. Um, and so that was really my, you know, 90% of my time focus from about March 2020 until really December of last year. Yeah, you had a whole team of people working with you on that. I guess, yeah, we've had Luisa Rodriguez on the show before talking about some of the work that she did to help you out, but I think she wasn't the only one. Yeah, so Luisa was enormously helpful, both in, you know, managing uh, part of the book and then also being a expert on global catastrophe and collapse. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, there was a small army of people working on this book, especially by the end, where I had Luisa and then Max Daniel in kind of chief of staff role, program managing the whole book. Mm. Then I had some full-time researchers employed as well, where the structure there would be they would have some specialty. So John Halstead was climate change, Stephen Clare's was a great power war, mm. but then would also be able to help on fact-checking in general. Then we did actually have a fact-checker who was essentially full-time for, I'm not quite sure, but I think it's from him alone, probably close to a year of work. Wow, yeah. And then we just had this large body of consultants. So people who were either writing um, one-off reports. So for example, Jaime Sevilla wrote a report on the persistent studies. Lucas Finnevedon wrote a report on value locking. Um, or were just providing in-depth advice. So from the early stages, I had Anton Howe as a historian um, mm. advising me on, you know, what the most interesting historical case studies could be to look at. Yeah, I... I have this kind of pet theory that, so a lot of nonfiction books seem to have a lot of problems with them or the things that they say often don't, don't really hold up. And it's tempting to blame the authors for that. But to some degree, I think it's like a systematic thing that like actually writing a book that has hundreds and hundreds of pages in it and like checking it all so that to make sure that all of your claims actually are substantiated by the references is kind of beyond the abilities of like any one person. And so I guess to some extent, you might have been able to avoid this just by throwing so many, so many person hours at the project. I mean, it's wild. Uh, I mean, like I say, I think the book used over the decades worth of time, as yeah. my guess went into it. And again, my estimate is like almost two years of that was just fact checking. Yeah. And especially if you have a high level of rigor, and I suspect there will still be many mistakes in it. Yeah. And that, you know, keeps me up at night. But especially if you have a high level of rigor, then just saying, oh, study says this, or the IPCC says this, and yeah. you kind of, that would be like the normal, reasonable level of rigor. But if you really care about the things you're saying being true, then digging deeper into that, mm. very often these claims that are passed around, they're just, yeah. Yeah, um, like citation, what do you call it? Just like citation chains that lead to nowhere in particular, or just like the, the, the you look at the paper and you're like, wow, this is hot garbage. <laughs> I don't um, believe this at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really learned the lesson of this over the course of COVID with mm. the uh, is it five micron rule. Oh, what's that? This is uh, the idea that oh, anything yeah, above yeah. five microns, it might mm. be five, might be 15, it cannot be airborne. Yeah. And that was just a definitional matter. And it went back to these studies in like the 20s and 30s. And there was just basically no, you know, it was just it a came from nowhere. Yeah. Or I think someone like made it up by accident because they'd misread something else. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. We'll stick up a link to the, to the article for listeners to check it out. But this was an extraordinary like citation chain to nowhere that on which like most public health <laughs> was, was, was based. based. Yeah. So it's a really striking thing. And so, yeah. and then when you get into, you know, my book does cover a lot of history. And there it's really tough because often there will be, you know, just not that much scholarship in an area mm. and it's very hard to know um and almost any, any any big claims or important claims you make are contested to some degree exactly yeah 
And then it's a little shame that often there's an anti-correlation between what facts are the most interesting mm. <laughs> in exactly the sort of facts you want to put into a general audience book and those that are true. So a lot of very interesting claims were cut at the final <laughs> stage because they turned out to not be, not be true, unfortunately. Yeah. I bet that there's a common situation that comes up is nonfiction writers, they kind of write their book and then maybe towards the end, they realize that a lot of the supporting claims kind of don't really hold up. But by that stage, it's so costly to back out of saying these things because they'd have to go back and rewrite the entire book and like let down their publisher and so on that they just kind of look the other way. Yeah. <laughs> and like, well, I'm committed to this part now. Yeah. I mean, that's if books even get to the fact checking stage. So mm. a tiny, tiny percentage of any non-fiction books are actually fact-checked mm. and so they can have really egregious errors but then yeah when you do do see books that have been fact-checked so an example being um why we sleep by i think the author's mm. matthew walker that was fact-checked and found to have egregious errors that was brought up and it's just not really paid attention to people didn't really seem to care yeah, um, I actually looked into this a couple of months ago because I was curious, like, oh, what, whatever became of someone checking the first chapter of that book and just finding that it was wrong all over the place, despite being written by a Harvard professor who supposedly is yeah. an expert in sleep. He's just going around giving same talks, same talks. Cha- nothing has changed, and no one raises the fact, like, no one raises this in his interviews anywhere, as far as I can tell, it's just completely neglected. Yeah, um, yeah. so it's a little shame. Yeah. Um, so we're going to do a full episode later in the year on on what we owe the future, when it's actually available for, for listeners to read and follow along the conversation. But to whet people's appetites, yeah, what parts of the book do you think the sorts of folks listening to this interview might be most excited to read when it comes out? I think there's a few aspects. So later in the book, I get into population ethics, and it was very hard to try and give a kind of overview of population ethics, again, for, you know, aimed at people who didn't have a, a philosophy background, mm. because it's normally kind of graduate level study. Mm-hmm. But I hopefully managed to do that, and especially its relevance to thinking about how we can benefit the long term. Similarly, I did a pretty deep dive into this question of the value of the future, Mm. uh, whether we should expect it to be good or bad, including just asking the question, is now good? Yeah. (laughs) Just take the world in 2022 or, you know, if you want to pick a different year, 2018 or something. Is that more positive than negative? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that you did that. Because as far as I know, I've never seen anyone write that up before. At least not not anyone who's like not a friend of mine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. So there was, there had been EA work on it that I had kind of drawn on but nothing that had done the deep dive in quite the way that we tried to do. And obviously there's still an enormous amount more mm. uh, that could have been written. It's just one chapter. So yeah, later on, I start to really deal with these more philosophical issues. I also have a chapter on something that's fairly neglected, which is importance of long-run technological stagnation, mm. where the argument there is not so much that, oh, we might stagnate and never get out of it. I think that's mm. quite unlikely. But instead that we, if we stagnated during... Uh, what Carl Sagan called the time of perils, just Mm. during a period of heightened extinction risk, that could greatly increase extinction risk overall, where we might have the power to create dangerous bioweapons, but not the technological power to defend against them, for example. And that's the reason for being concerned about technological stagnation. Like getting stuck in a dangerous state for an extended period of time. Exactly, yeah. yeah, Leveling off for a while. Exactly. Um, But then the main thing is probably that I focus much more on the idea of values and the contingency of values, importance of promoting better values and uh, the possibility of value lock-in than normally gets discussed in discussions of long-termism. 
Yeah, I guess you're, you're kind of fixing a long-standing error or a long-standing <laughs> problem that we've recognized with effective altruism or like the mm-hmm. kind of research project and the stuff that we talk about and prioritize. I, well, I just I feel like for years people have said, like including both of us, it's like, yeah. we don't really ever talk about this values thing, yeah, but yeah. Does, isn't it possible that we could avoid going extinct and then kind of produce no value because we just yeah. have the wrong ideas about what's good? And now you're really putting it front and center, which I think is, uh, I mean, it seems like the book will hopefully be big enough uh, that it can maybe like fix this problem in one, in one first week. Yeah, I hope so. And it's actually... Yeah, towards the end of writing the book and having further discussions about it, that yeah, I started to appreciate that there are certain issues that there's really quite a lot of disagreement on mm. within the long, you know, those who consider themselves long termists, which really make a large difference for conceptually how you think about what we ought to do with respect to making the long term future go better, and just yeah, how we yeah how we should categorize things as well, mm. and the difference there is. The key difference, it seems to me, is whether you expect from a very wide variety of worlds, of kind of ways the kind of pleasant could be, whether you expect us to converge onto some, you know, basically the right thing to do, like some very good outcome. Or do you think it's actually really quite contingent? Mm. And depending on the values that are pleasant at the moment, that could really shape the value of the very long term. And you could, you know, as a simplification, think, well, how much does it matter kind of who gets AGI, even if the AI alignment problem is solved? Mm. And so assume that we've managed to solve the risk for the misaligned AI. Does it really matter if it's me or you or Julia Wise or Kim Jong-un or Hitler? Like, how big are the value differences there? Yeah. And there's one view, which is just, well, anyone who has that level of kind of intelligence at the disposal will kind of reflect and reason and converge onto broadly the right answer. And then you can go all the way to a kind of a view that posits radical contingency where you would think, oh no, actually it's just like enormously important. And yeah. you know, kind of who is in charge during those critical moments for the long term. Yeah, one, one theme of the book is kind of challenging the idea that there's been this inevitable convergence on kind of the more, that like the better modern values that we have today, that, that things kind of had to be like, you know, as we got richer and more educated, that, yeah. we, that we had to converge on the values that, that we have now. You kind of argue that things could have gone off in many different directions. I, yeah. think, I, I think if there's one thing you learn from studying history, it's that people can believe all kinds of different <laughs> crazy, crazy, thi- well, crazy yeah. things from my point of view, or just like absolutely outrageously different cosmologies. Yeah, I mean, so... Historians in general tend to emphasize this idea of contingency, where, yeah, when I say that something is contingent, I just mean that, I don't mean it was like an accident that it happened. I just mean that it could have plausibly gone a different way. Yeah. And so uh, an example of contingency and what I would call bad lock-in that I like to use is the song Happy Birthday. Mm. So the melody for Happy Birthday is really atrocious. It's like a dirge. It has this like... (laughs) really large interval, happy birthday. Like, mm. no one can sing it. I can't mm. sing it. Like, And so, really, if you were going to pick a, you know, a tune to be the most to widely, to, yeah. to be the most widely sung um, song in the world, <laughs> it really wouldn't be that tune. Yeah, it, it's the one that took off and it's now, you know, in almost all, like, major languages, that's the tune you oh. sing for happy birthday. Is there an explanation for that? Um, I think like it's just like... Chance and circumstance happen to us all. Exactly, or, yeah. Uh, you get one piece of music that becomes the standard and then like, you know, other people could start yeah. trying to create a different happy birthday song, but it won't, you know, it won't take, take off because yeah, that's not the standard. Done. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously this is like, why does it persist? Well, partly because it's just not that big a deal. Yeah. But I think it's a kind of illustration of the fact that you can get something that is quite contingent 
it could have been otherwise. Happy Birthday could have had one of many different tunes, could have been better. Hmm. We'd all be slightly happier if Virgil <laughs> was singing a different Happy Birthday tune. Uh, but, but we're stuck. Yeah, it's but just, we're stuck with it. Yeah. yeah. And then there's other things if you look. Again, I kind of like to think of non-model examples to begin with. Hmm. So the fact that, you know, now it's at least fading out of fashion, but the fact that we all wear neckties like in businesses. Yeah. Like, it's such a bizarre item of clothing. Yeah. There's obviously no reason why, you know, wearing a bit of cloth around your neck would indicate kind of status or prestige. Yeah. Um, we could have had different indicators of that. Yet that is, as a matter of fact, the thing that took off. Mm. And so that's another thing. When we look at these non-model examples... Uh, well, I guess there I think, people are pretty happy to accept that it is random. Exactly, yeah. yeah things. Yeah, exactly. Or there's just this fundamental arbitrariness. Mm. But then where things get really interesting is the question of how much is that true for moral views Mm. and certainly it's not going to be true for many sorts of values so the idea that's important to look after your children or something Mm. a society that didn't value that probably wouldn't do very well as a society so it doesn't seem um it's at a competitive disadvantage so there's there's selection pressure going on there. yeah exactly whereas other moral values i think we can say they really do seem contingent so Mm. and it's perhaps quite uncontroversial so attitudes to diet for example so most of the world's vegetarians are then in india where something like a third of the population are vegetarian why is that well it's clearly just because of a religious tradition um similarly why muslims or jews tend to not eat pork mm. um again we can just point to the religious tradition and there's clear variation in people's diet yeah. and that really makes a moral difference mm. as well so that's i think a very clear-cut case of moral contingency yeah, something. So I've been on this kick learning about theology and old old religions uh, mm. the, the, the last six months. And um, one of my just favorite crazy facts about the history of religion is so, so the Jains have been around for a very long mm-hmm. time. This like Indian religions, yep. to some extent, sort of a precursor to Buddhism. So I think like around four thousand BC, they already had this concern that you couldn't eat particular kind of root vegetables mm-hmm. because if uh, they tended to attract insects onto them. And so if you like pulled these carrots out of the ground and then ate yep. them, you'd be harming the insects that are that are on on oh, these like wow, root vegetables. Okay. So they have like particular that's why they have particular dietary restrictions like not only do you have to be vegetarian but you can't eat like plants that attract too many insects to them and it's like imagine being a subsistence farmer yeah in like you know rural india 4000 bc it's like presumably no education but like this strikes you as a really important thing it's like insect well-being uh and and you're willing to make like material sacrifices it really shows the power of culture yeah, yeah culture and values where people can just have yeah make what seem like very large material sacrifices um, on the basis of, yeah, these cultural practices or kind of higher model ideals. Yeah. So, yeah, but then the most interesting cases are cases where currently the model norm is closer to universal. Mm. But, you know, you might think that some evidence of convergence, um, oh, perhaps we've all just realized that this model norm is correct. And so that's kind of shows model progress, Mm. but not necessarily. There, there was convergence on the tune of Happy Birthday. <laughs> that doesn't mean that that's the correct tune or yeah. even the best tune. And so in the book, I give this deep dive into abolition of slavery. Mm. And this was actually something that the historian Anton Howes first pointed me on to. Mm. And when he did, he made this claim that he thought if it weren't for, you know, the very particular abolitionist campaign that did in fact happen, originating primarily out of the Quakers in North America and or Pennsylvania in particular, and then it got exported to the UK, that the abolition of slavery would have taken decades, centuries, or maybe even just would not have happened. And I thought that mm. was just wild. When yeah. I, um, sounds like a first, crazy claim. It sounds like it, it sounded like a crazy claim. Yeah. And I was intrigued enough, though, that mm. um, I really started to dig into it. 
And yeah, my overall view, I mean, with anything that's a historical counterfactual like this, you know, it's very hard to know. <laughs> you, you're kind of trying to assess the counterfactual from one data point. But I, I certainly think it's a non-crazy claim. And I certainly think that the standard arguments for the inevitability of the abolition of slavery are not good arguments. Mm. And then secondly, I think the fact that we find it a crazy claim is more a matter of our... Lack of imagination. Lack of imagination, yeah. I think we tend to think of other people as more morally similar to ourselves than, mm. uh, than they in fact are. Yeah, I guess, so in studying economics, I kind of encountered this view that slavery went away because of the Industrial Revolution, making it like an obsolete method of production, or that slavery no longer made sense even for slave owners or, or for countries mm -hmm. in terms of maximizing GDP, like even setting aside moral concerns. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you, I mean, you make the case, the case in the book that I guess that that is actually not like a, an academically defended view these days, and also that it's just clearly wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this was actually stems back to... Uh, scholar Eric Williams, who made this claim in the 50s. And that was an important piece of scholarship. But yeah, it has, it's really not accepted now. Mm. Um, and I think for good reason. So one big thing is that slavery was booming as a trade. Mm. The slave trade was booming when it got abolished. So the number of slaves was increasing. The economic value of a slave was increasing. The sugar trade, which was the primary trade, uh, the slave trade, founded was enormously profitable, especially for Britain. Mm. So it actually looks like Britain took a like a hit of about 5% of its GDP mm. just because of the price of sugar increasing. I wow. mean, it's wild at the time. What? <laughs> sugar was huge. I mean, think of it as just uh, the luxury food? good. Okay, uh, and Britain consumed more sugar than the rest of Europe combined at the time because wow. Britain was like quite a bit more economically advanced than other countries at the time. Hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy for sugar now. Yeah, is there anything like sugar that now? Day? It's almost like oil. Um, okay, like oil, yeah. yeah. Which seems mad. With sources of calories, I <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it seems mad because obviously we take it for granted now. Yeah, and then also if you just like start to think about the claim that it was like mechanization that took it away, well, like even in the US South, mechanization of agriculture, you know, didn't really happen until well into the 20th century. Mm. Even now, you know, enormous amounts of labor and engaged in kind of unmechanized work. Yeah. Um, there's also all sorts of labor that are still not mechanized, that slaves right. have traditionally been used for. So right. sex slavery and... Uh, like housework. Was like a and yeah, housework so, yeah. as well, very common. And then also sometimes in history, enslaved people were used in, like as shop managers, for example, or actually like quite highly oh, business skilled. Business managers, yeah. Business managers in classical Athens um, in particular. That was, yeah, that was like relatively common. Yeah, I think my understanding is I think the, the, the Romans also had this system where slaves could potentially work in these more demanding professions, more intellectually demanding professions. And like once yeah. they made their, their owner a sufficient amount of money, then they were kind of given their freedom or at least their, their children were freed. But they, but they right, could be running yeah. like whole enterprises effectively as like yeah, CEOs absolutely. for like companies for these oligarchs. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So like, it doesn't seem like there's an in-principle reason why yeah. you can't have highly skilled work done yeah. Yeah, using slavery, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And I don't talk about this aspect in the book because it's a little bit more speculative, but technology you know, takes some of their economic incentive away from them using labor of enslaved people, you know, because of mechanization. But it also potentially decreases some of the costs of using enslaved people as well. So mm. you could have anklets that mean that you can track people mm. more accurately or surveillance cameras that means you can monitor people's work more accurately. Yeah. And it's at least not obvious from the armchair kind of how those two things shake out. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, I think I think I might might try to cut off this conversation here because we're going to do a full episode later in the year where we can talk about this part sure. of the book and, and all the others and, and really dive into the substance, uh, which uh, which which I'm looking forward to. I think. I mean, an interesting thing about the book is I think it's fair to say I spent an hour or two of my life thinking about uh, long-termism and, uh, mm-hmm. and how to affect the long-term future. And I would still say that the great majority of, of stuff in this book was basically new to me. Or in yeah. as much as it wasn't new to me, it was because we talked about the book okay. at various points over the last couple of years. Wow, well, that's uh, so, so nice to hear. I yeah. wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, it's it's, it's surprising that there is so much new stuff to say or that even doing an introduction or like or kind of something that yeah. goes from the beginning, you can basically do it all with, with fresh material. Yeah, I mean, I it really updated me to thinking that there's an enormous amount that one can do in terms of long-termist research mm-hmm. that is not, you know, yet more work on AI timelines or AI safety or something, yeah. where there's a huge amount of, a huge number of views and sometimes knowledge that does float around that has never been written up. Mm-hmm. And there's also just a lot of things that are just total gaps. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, Louisa got involved because close to nothing had been written on this question of... If there's a catastrophe that kills the vast majority of people, what's the chance of recovery? You know, Nick Beckstead had written a blog post on this. Mm. That was really most, <laughs> of of the the li- <laughs> most of the literature. Yeah. And I really wanted to just come in and be like, look, this is of huge importance. Mm. Because if it's, you know, 50-50 when you lose 99% of the population, do you come back to, you know, modern levels of technology? Mm. That potentially radically changes how we should do prioritize, long-termist prioritization For because sure. yeah. catastrophes that kill 99% of people are much more likely, I think, than catastrophes mm. that kill 100%. Mm. And that's just one of, I think, very many particular issues that just hadn't had this, yeah, kind of sufficient investigation. And it's not like I think that this book... I mean, the ideal for me from people reading this book is if they go away and like take one little chunk of it that might be a paragraph in the book or like a, a chapter of it and then really do, you know, 10 years of the search perhaps on the question. Yeah, yeah. Before we push on, there was one kind of re- recurrent audience question uh, for you about the book. Basically, quite a few people have been pointing out recently that I suppose... so. People who are involved in long-termism or people who are focused on you know, preventing global catastrophes, preventing existential risks, many of them, and I guess including me, think that there's a, you know, a 10% or higher probability that you know, over the course of our lifetimes, things are going to go radically, terribly, and, like, and we could die, and like, you know, everything we care about could, 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 could be destroyed. And if that's what you like, think empirically, if that's your model of the world, then you don't really need the long-termist philosophy in order to motivate you to, to work on reducing these risks and, and, and tackling these problems. Because whether you care about future generations or not, this just seems to be a massive problem. And some some people have been making the case that maybe we should stop talking about all of this, like, you know, population ethics and philosophy mm-hmm. uh, and trying to get people to care about their great, 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 great grandchildren, you know, as much as the present generation. And instead just point out that like, wow, you know, the world is a super risky place and there's lots mm-hmm. of stuff that could go really wrong. And like, you could be killed by these things. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you're, yeah. And, you know, all the things that you care about in the world could be destroyed. And perhaps that's a more compelling case and one that's like easier to make and doesn't require these like difficult philosophical issues to be addressed. So I think it's a great thing for us to be thinking about. And honestly, it is the sort of thing that keeps me up at night yeah. <laughs> um, as someone who's been a bit explicitly on long-termism. Yeah. I have a bunch of thoughts. One is just that, you know, Toby's book, The Precipice, focuses, mm. or at least the way I take it, focuses much more on ex- existential risk and makes more of just the direct case, like, hey, the risk is really quite large mm. um, this century. And so there's benefits of trying out both. A second thing is just that, you know, how well do these things play um, is just an empirical question. Mm. And 
There has been some message testing done on this, which isn't public yet, but I think hopefully will be soon. Mm. And it's not really clear, actually, from that testing, whether both existential risk and long-termism do kind of similarly well. Yeah. Once you dig into particular risks, so risk from pandemics mm. um, does very well now, <laughs> um, as I you might guess. Um, risk from AI does quite poorly. Mm. Um, and that's pretty important for the like, oh, we should really just be focusing on existential risk. Because most mm. people who have that view think that almost mm. all of the risk is from AI. Right. And then it's just really so not is, clear So people are kind me. of just skeptical that it's a big deal. Yeah, exactly. Because okay. people aren't familiar with the arguments. Right. Um, yeah. And so the question really should be, well, which is more compelling, the particular arguments for AI or the arguments for kind of a long-term outlook? Mm. And again, you know, that's just at least non-obvious to me. And in, in particular, I think it depends a lot on how you frame things. Mm. So, oh, we should care about our, like the lives of our grandkids and our grandkids' grandkids. Mm. Like, I remember telling someone about the book I was writing and she was like, oh, are you also going to write that water is wet? Because it just seemed like so obvious. Like, oh, of course, we should care about how yeah. things go, not just now, but into like the centuries that come. Mm. And then the final thing, and this is really what moves me. And interestingly, I think Toby, at least in conversation, said he wanted to write more on long-termism for this reason. Mm. It's just, I think it's really important to convey what you believe and why. Yeah. Where, here's an example of that going wrong. So suppose you really care about people becoming vegetarian because you're concerned about animal welfare. Mm. And you think like, oh, well, we can convince these people even better mm. by it to become vegetarian if we talk about the health benefits. And then perhaps people do that and they don't actually become vegetarian. They cut out beef and start eating more chicken. And perhaps you've actively done harm. I think yeah. empirically that's not, isn't actually what happens, but um, it's at yeah. least like there was major worries that it could happen. Or I guess, I suppose if you convince people of like some specific conclusion under sort of false pretenses, or at least like not for the, re not for the main reason that you believe it, then it's very hard for them to go out and kind of operationalize what you think like ought to be done on that basis because they're walking away believing something that's quite different potentially than what, than what you believe. Exactly. So if the environment changes, if our information changes, then you ideally would want the people you've convinced to also update in the same way and change their behavior. Mm. But if you just convince them of this fairly narrow thing, then they won't do that, in fact. And so I do think it's very important then that people actually understand, like, no, morally speaking, like, this is the kind of fundamental thing that we should be aiming for, which yeah. is, like, all of the good that could be done over not just this century, but the many centuries um, that come. Because then I think people will just make far better decisions. And then I guess the final thing is... Yeah, just, I think your views on this will probably just depend on, one, how large you think existential risk is at the moment. Mm. So there are some people who think that, you know, the probability of human extinction from AI within the next 20 years is like 90% or higher. Mm. And I think if you do believe that, it just seems pretty plausible on your face that you should just be talking about that <laughs> um, yeah. rather than going via any detour. Um, if you think the probability is much lower... And it's not as clear how to prioritize between, say, values changes or AI or reducing risk of pandemics or unknown unknowns. Then getting the fundamental moral view across becomes more important. And then also the more that you think we've still got kind of surprises ahead of us mm. in terms of how we currently see the world, yeah. then the more important it is to... Um, Get, get, give people get, the right underlying exactly, uh, yeah. understanding, yeah, rather than just feed them the conclusions that you happen to have right now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, it is quite interesting that 
So, so we've got these two different angles. One is like extinction is high risk over the next 50 years. The other mm-hmm. one is like, yeah, future generations matter a lot. And it seems like reactions to either of these vary so massively. Like you're mm. saying, some, to some people, it's like, is, is, is water wet? Uh, yeah. Do future generations matter similarly to the present generation? Whereas to other people, it seems like a wildly counterintuitive and completely bizarre claim. Yeah. And likewise... To some people, you say, oh, yeah, I think the risk of extinction during our lifetimes is 10%. They'll say, absolutely, like, if anything, it's higher. Yeah, and yeah. I, and I, don't, I don't mean, like, you know, you know, people who are already involved in long-termism, but just, but just random strangers. Uh, to yeah. some people, it's very intuitive, whereas other people will regard that as an absolutely baffling. And yeah. <laughs> I suppose it just, it, it's kind of hard to prove either of these claims. Yeah. Uh, so you, maybe you, just, you could potentially just take a strategy of, you know, pointing out all of these things. Yeah, that's right. I also think there's a big difference between whether you want to say that something is the most important thing versus, mm. um, oh, this is really important and we should act on it, mm. where, yeah, extinction risk being high in our lifetimes certainly makes the claim like this is a very important thing and should be a key moral priority. Mm. Um, I think on any like reasonable moral view. Mm. But effective altruists are generally trying to figure it out, is this the most important thing? Right. And perhaps and it's also bar. justified, mm. even if you're just looking at the next century, but it is a much higher bar. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, I do think there's one thing that, is an issue in talking about long-termism, which is yeah. getting into these tiny probabilities of like mm. very large amounts of value. I like, that's like that was off, a terrible off. detour. I, I'm so sad that we ever got into that. Yeah. I know. It's like, it's very theoretically interesting. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating if you're like someone who studies edge cases in expected value theory as an economist or a yeah, philosopher. exactly. But it makes, it gives people the impression that people think that, yeah, existential risk is 0.00001%. And I'm like, no, no, it's like, even yeah. if you're on the skeptical end, you think it's more likely than dying in a car crash in your lifetime or yeah. um, that. And we certainly take a lot of um, measures <laughs> to stop ourselves from dying in a car crash. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Let's, let's push on, uh, lest, we, lest we cannibalize the next episode that we're going to do. One thing that is always a little bit hard to make sense of when I'm updating your little bio at the top of the episode every time we do an interview is just... You seem to have so much stuff going on at any point in time. There's so many competing yeah. uh, priorities, like pulling you every 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 which way. So I, I guess at the moment you've got this the whole book thing coming up, and you've been working on the book. Yeah, you're you're still at the University of Oxford, right? You're still still, still a <laughs> philosophy professor, as That's I right. understand it. Uh, you're helping to run the Forethought Foundation, uh, which yeah. which you also helped to set up. Uh, now you're advisor an advisor on the Future Fund, yeah. um, as of as of recently. And I know you know whenever eighty thousand hours has a particularly thorny problem that we can't figure out between the twenty of us. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you're one of the people we turn to for advice, and I yeah, think we're, we're, we're we're in good company there. Yeah, when I solicited questions for this episode, quite a lot of people responded with this similar sort of disbelief at the, I don't know, the lifestyle you lead or the amount of work <laughs> responsibilities that you have. Yeah, people were curious, like, how are you doing on a personal level? How, how, do, you, how do you cope with it all? Uh, yeah, so it's a good question. I very often feel too thinly spread, and that yeah. is a cause of stress. It also just is the case. So, you know, we've talked a lot on previous podcasts about, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, um, mm. the importance of looking after yourself and making sure that you're working in a way that's sustainable over the long term. Mm. I will acknowledge the last four months or so, maybe six months, have not been sustainable in okay. terms of how hard I've been working. Right. Where in particular, you know, I really did a big sprint to finish the book, mm. you know, over the course of 2021. You know, I just really got quite obsessed by it. I was working extremely hard. Mm. And then uh, I was looking forward to some time off. But then there's this whole future fund fdx yeah. foundation <laughs> thing and it uh it really did seem to me like i i went to talk with sam bankman fleed who's was just on uh, the podcast and nick Beckstead, who i'm sure will be on sometime this year and it just really did seem to me like this was just 
kind of an enormous kind of inflection point for EA and that I could just be, you know, very unusually helpful having worked with Nick for many years, um, you know, getting on very well with him. And so I did cancel all of those more fun plans and Mm -hmm. um, uh, just worked on that, Uh, you know, and that used up just like quite a lot of my time over the last few months. And yeah, it means I've been traveling quite a lot as well. Yeah. So basically, (laughs) you've been been burning out somewhat or like at risk of burning out, at least like very recently. A little bit, but now (laughs) things... But the lesson, (laughs) positive lesson. I mean, I think the fact that like I had been so attentive to the idea of it's a marathon, not a sprint for Mm. many years before that Mm. um, did allow me to like you know, pull out the extra gear for these last few months. Um, I also will return to that again. You know, I'm yeah, taking well, some time fine. off literally next week. Okay. Yeah, um, and good. so that's like, this, maybe things are feeling kind of more set up with the Future Fund. Obviously the book launch will be intense, but mm. uh, no, I'm going to move back to a more sustainable state. But I think the fact that, yeah, I had invested in myself, like, you know, I just now am like far happier than I was, say, 13 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, and progressively so. Like I, I estimate I'm like five to 10 times happier than I was. Yeah, how, I guess, so, so you're public about having had depression uh, yeah. for, for quite an extended time, I guess, as a teenager, as an, as an undergraduate as well, and yeah, having spent a lot of time working on that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah how have you ended up five or 10 times happier? It sounds, sounds like a large multiple. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, one part of it is being, you know, still positive, but somewhat close to zero, um, mm. you know, back then. But also now I do, I would say that I'm now, you know, among the, ha- like, if even if I think of my peer group, you know, say friends from university and so on, mm. I probably put myself in the happiest 10% or something. So that's like really pretty good. Um, yeah, that's that's so good. That's, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I feel like very, I mean, I feel happy about it. Um, uh, and that's been from just a wide variety of things just mm. over a very long time period. There's the classics like learning to sleep well and meditate and mm. get the right medication and exercise there's also just been an awful lot of just understanding your own mind mm. and having good responses. So for me, the thing that often happens is I start to beat myself up for not being productive enough or not being smart enough or just kind of otherwise failing or something. Mm. And having a, you know, a triggered action plan where when that starts happening, I'm like, okay, suddenly like the top priority on my to-do list again is like looking after my mental health. And often that just means like taking some time off, working out, meditating, and then being and like perhaps also just journaling as well to recognize that I'm like being or <laughs> recognize that I'm like being a little bit crazy and um, yeah. like overriding things. the exactly the natural yeah. instincts. Yeah. So I don't know. In the case of perhaps I'll be feeling like on a day I'm just like oh I'm being so slow at this. Like other people would be so much more productive. Mm. Like oh I'm like feeling inadequate. Then it can be like, look, okay, well, sure, maybe today is not going so well, but like, how is the last like six months or something? Like, yeah. think about like what have you achieved then, and it's like, okay, that that does seem better. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've just gotten better at like these kind of mental habits, and that's just been this very long process, but um, it's really paid off, I think. Yeah, was it a matter of 
finding out that that was something that's important to do? Or I mean, I think a lot of people who tend to beat themselves up about work or just about their performance in life in general, they might know in principle that those are exactly the moments when they need to ease off on themselves mm. and like focus on their well-being and their, and their mental health. But of course, that's the last thing you want to do if you feel like you're not being productive. Like, yeah. The natural instinct is no, now I need to double down, I need to pull an all-nighter to, like, yeah, to, yeah. to, to finish this project. And that instinct can be so strong that it can kind of override <laughs> uh, like what you've read in any, in any mental health books. Yeah, so I think this was this was a huge realization for me. And I think I have to thank a very excellent therapist who I've subsequently put a bunch of EAs onto. I think she was really confused by why she just gets so many referrals from me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because when I came into there, and when was that? Like 2012, 2013, maybe. Maybe, no, probably even earlier, 2011. Mm. I definitely had this mindset that the self-flagellation, the negative blame propaganda was very important. And I remember she said, like, well, you seem very stressed. I was like, of course I'm stressed. I'm a utilitarian. Um, <laughs> we, we have to suffer. Exactly. That's the core part of the philosophy. Exactly. And the thought was like, oh, no, maybe I'd, like, lose. Mm. You know, I, it felt like, okay, well, it's, yeah, uh, sacrifice of my own well-being, but, like, it's in order to achieve things. And she just kind of called bullshit on that. And I think she was just totally correct, which is like, no, you're just beating yourself up. Yeah. And you do you would do that whether or not yeah. <laughs> you yeah. were like trying to did, do did you only just start doing this yeah, when exactly. you discovered moral philosophy? Exactly. Or, no, I was no. doing it when I was yeah. a teenager and wanted to be a poet. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was like the fundamental insight. Was like, oh no, actually, maybe this is bad <laughs> yeah. for me doing doing good in the world. And that lesson, like I start, you know, started that lesson, and it took a very long time because it's like you've got. You've built up by that mm. point this like mental such habit. Such a strong, yeah, such a strong this, urge. Yeah, this whole set of mental propaganda to back that thought of like, no, this is important. And like the things you really care about, you will drop mm. if uh, you if don't you express if, any kindness to yourself. Exactly, yeah. And so it was helpful having some role models as well. I think Holden's really good in this regard. Mm. Um, so he's always some, you know, someone I've always looked up to and respected an enormous amount and just is hugely productive. And he'd be like, yeah, I never feel guilt. I never beat myself up. How do I decide how many hours I do while I look at what's my average number of hours that I've worked the last few months and I work that number? <laughs> or like I try and like, you know, maybe try and be higher than that number. Yeah. And I was like, you can do this? Like, <laughs> that's possible. Um, and when does the suffering come in? It's like, <laughs> when do you schedule? Yeah. Exactly. And so, and I think it is just important. And it means like having that, yeah, having those mental habits in place from this long time period of investment, yeah, does mean that like if there are like particular moments, opportunities where it's like, oh wow, it can have real impact here. Mm. Well, it means you do have this extra kind of gas canister to mm. to use. Yeah, we should we should really do an episode on self compassion at some point soon because it just seems like. I mean, I feel like I know a lot of people because of like the, the seriousness of the problems that we're dealing with or, or trying to solve who are like extremely harsh on themselves all mm. the time and exactly have this mentality that if I wasn't yeah. harsh on myself, if I wasn't beating myself up all the time about ensuring that I get my work done, then I wouldn't get anything done. And I think it's, uh, I mean, there's like a lot of research into this now, which shows that it's that it's not so that, that is mistaken. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, very kind of productive, which is unsurprising in a sense. Like if you had someone who was kind of managing, you know, someone in an organization through a difficult project, a difficult yep. time, they're, they're taking on a big challenge professionally, you would never have them kind of follow this person around and denigrate their efforts all the time. Like you're not working hard enough. You need to go, yeah, you need yeah, to go harder. Yeah. And like this, yeah, you, <laughs> this just shows your stupidity, the work yeah. that you've done today. Uh, obviously you, you'll get a lot more done if you had someone who was supportive, like yeah. coaching you through the challenges. Like sometimes maybe like 
jing you on a little bit and saying no you can do better but like that's not yeah. <laughs> giving being brutal to someone isn't like terrible management yeah. uh, and yet that is like the thing that people are saying to themselves is like what they desperately need the voice in their head all the time yeah it's incredible how much of a asymmetry people can have and certainly i had and still have with respect to other people versus myself mm. i remember i did a meditation that really had quite a big impact on me which was just a gratitude meditation mm. and I was very used to being grateful for other people and like feel that very strongly the meditation got me to be grateful for myself asked mm. me to do that i was like i've never thought of that before of doing that yeah and i was like yeah man i really am thankful for the things like earlier will did and it was pretty striking that something that is so like an attitude i would so easily have towards other people i hadn't even thought to have towards myself yeah um and that's just yeah absolutely the same as well with you know being critical and forgiving yeah and very different attitudes by disposition to other people and myself. I used to do a bunch of this. I think I was never never quite at the at the level that you were back in 2011, but I used to like beat myself up like pretty regularly mm-hmm. about yeah, like I'm too lazy, I'm like messing this and that up. Yeah. And I think antidepressants made a huge difference for yeah. me and just like kind of breaking that that yeah. habit of being yeah, being self like waking up in the morning and spending half an hour in bed just yeah. like thinking yeah. about how I'm like failing to achieve various goals. Um and yeah, letting go of that did not damage my productivity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm like getting as much done. Yeah, I'm like more energetic and like more enthusiastic to do things because it doesn't bring with it this like anxiety and self denigration. Yeah. yeah, that's great to hear. And you do just seem a lot happier. Yeah, and more zen than yeah back in the day. Um, yeah, it is just such a revelation to realize that it was completely unnecessary all along. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess speaking of self sacrifice and doing difficult things, a couple of weeks ago you had a journalist from the New Yorker who's writing a profile on you. I think following you around <laughs> everywhere <laughs> for a week. Yeah, I mean maybe you're used to this, and this is just like water off a duck's back at this point. But this sounds like living hell to me. <laughs> Having a journalist just like follow me around a week, like watching my conversations and what, what I'm doing. I'm like, I mean. It was, yeah. yeah, it was definitely, I'm not used to this. Okay. Certainly do. Um, it's funny, I'm now aware that he's going to be listening. So hi, Gideon. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm, sure, I'm sure he's a lovely guy. No, I, I, I mean, I think was, if, I, if, I, if I asked Gideon if I could follow him around for a week, he probably would say no. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm thankful that he is a great guy and genuinely engaged in these issues and just a wonderful profile writer as well. Hmm. So yeah, you can read some of his work on New Yorker. Did a great profile of Paige Harden, who wrote a book, The Genetic Lottery. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it does, it's definitely intense. Like I find like you, meetings and social interaction kind of draining. Mm. And, you know, I kind of deliberately scheduled my time so that he could have more of an insight into what things are like so that I had more meetings. So it was going to be kind of maybe more mm. tiring anyway. Mm. And then I had an EAJX Oxford as well. But certainly when you've got a third person kind of observing <laughs> as well, and you've like, <laughs> you've now got to kind of track, you know, is this like, is he okay as well? Um, yeah, it definitely... It was definitely pretty tiring. So um, yeah, my EAGX uh, Oxford had a fireside chat, which definitely, I think it was my worst fireside chat. (laughs) I was pretty tired by the end of that week. So um, Well, we'll stick up a link to that so the listeners can check that out on YouTube. I hope hope you do. There's one point where I get asked a question and then I just like midway through, I'm like, I have no idea, no idea idea where I'm going with this. Um, Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was challenging. Yeah. Are you excited to read the profile? I'm Mix of excited and terrified. I mean, who knows what will... um, I mean, we're going to have many more conversations and he's going to talk to my family and lots of my friends and other people in EA and so on. And so, yeah, we'll... I mean, we'll see. 
Who knows what it'll be? Yeah. Well, I guess thanks for suffering this so that the rest of us don't have to have a, a, any New Yorker profiles. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, at least um, the worst case is you can get an enjoyable lead. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's. I, I think I, I do remember a couple of years ago you saying, "Oh, I'm kind of taking it easy this year because I don't mm. feel like this is the most important year." So mm. this is this is a year when I can kind of relax, like relative to the to the past, and like build up energy for for the future. And that that strategy is kind of now paid off. It seems. Yeah, absolutely. So I took you know several holidays that were three weeks long each, and and you know did other things like I um, got much more into music, including mm. making music. And for sure, I'm still like at the moment not doing as much of that as I would like. Hmm. But it does it makes it much easier because it's like, well, I've you know had this period of time that was where I was investing much more in yeah non-work aspects of my life. Hmm. That means I have cultivated you know really strong friendships, like a really wonderful relationship that mean I get like extremely high quality um, hmm. time off when I have it. Similarly with kind of yeah other interests as well. And the biggest thing of that as well is having a multiple identity. Mm, yeah. um, earlier days of EA, I, you know, I really was so obsessed with the work that it's like, yeah. you know, what was my defining characteristic was just my identity was my work or something. And it means if yeah. that's going badly, then... Yeah, um, and I guess your, your, really... your friendship group is the same as your work colleagues uh, Ex- to a yeah, large extent. Yeah, that's yeah. like... Whereas, you know, now I, yeah, I spent years kind of very deliberately cultivating kind of very strong social circle outside of that including my old friends from school and university mm. and that's just really nice because it's like well i kind of mm. know that like even if all the work stuff went badly i still have a good life doing other stuff <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah that's that's a shift that's been helpful for me the last couple of years is like yeah, meeting more people who have nothing to do with effective altruism or, more, yeah. or or work and yeah just feeling like i have like multiple aspects in my in my life it's like so <laughs> so refreshing <laughs> yeah and so so relaxing it's so like re- reassuring as well yeah absolutely um, and so yeah for all this stuff i think people should always just think like it's a marathon not a sprint that's the mantra i use for myself and it can be very easy like you know i do know some people who just worked extraordinarily hard mm. for short periods of time and then you know burned out burned out after that point and it's really something to guard against yeah I guess it's it's a slightly perverse thing that kind of the more successful your career goes, that the more impactful like each additional day of work is going to be. And so like any time that you take a holiday or yeah, anytime you take yeah. an afternoon off, like the, the cost kind of only gets or, or yeah, the, the, the moral importance of that kind of only gets larger and larger. And yet, you know, you still you do still have to maintain that level of balance. At some point, someone has sent you an incredibly important problem and you have to say, No, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna answer that email. It's wild. It's completely wild. So, and it's a way in which doing good is just different from making money or just, you know, self-interest where mm. if you are really successful in your business career and you're just aiming to make as much money or have as much well-being for yourself as possible, then at the point where you've done really well at that, mm. hey, you can retire. Money's not worth that much anymore. Yeah. Not true for doing That's, good. Yeah. It's the yeah. opposite. Yeah. <laughs> Once yeah. you've been very successful and you're now in a position where you can have eat like... Things just even, get worse. Yeah. You can have even more influence now. And so that is tough. And that's something where the kind of, I would call it mental health training that I have done Mm. just comes in even more, even more usefully. I definitely reflect because with, um, yeah, future fund, things feel very high stakes and the rest of EA as well. It's just enormous stakes compared to how things were, say in, you know, 2010. Mm. If I had the, you know, mental state in 2010, I would not be able to cope (laughs) at all. Yeah. Whereas being in a position where I guess I can feel more empowered to look after myself 
and just be less anxious mm. does just allow you, I think, to become more comfortable with things that are so high stakes and therefore have you know a bigger impact overall, I think. Yeah. You're in this slightly odd position of having had a really huge influence over the careers of, I guess, like hundreds, thousands of people probably out there. And like, I guess, I mean, I imagine that conversations that you've had with people have led to dozens of people changing their careers and probably in terms of like stuff that you've written more broadly, it's yeah, made a, made a big change to the lives of plenty of people that you meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Is that like kind of a high pressure <laughs> situation or I don't know, yeah, how, how do you deal with that mentally? Yeah. I mean, hopefully the influence I had is positive rather than negative. But um, I mean, it's great. Like we had one thing that's just been interesting is way back in 2010, 2011, we Mm. were doing these kind of arguments with respect to, you know, I was going around giving these high impact careers talk, talking about earning to give. And Mm. the twist was like, oh, no, but you can do even more good again (laughs) by um, going around and convincing other people. Mm. Um, And... It's so interesting looking back then because these were all kind of on paper ideas and we mm. really had no clue on how, you know, how true were they going to be in reality? What yeah. was it like actually? Um, and, guess, and this kind of argument of, oh, no, I shouldn't do X, I should convince everyone else to do X. Yeah. It like sets off red flags for a lot of people. It for feels sure. wrong somehow. I mean, it's definitely true that not everyone can do that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so you've got to have some argument about why you're in a kind of unusual position. But I think, at least think for me, that was just absolutely correct. Mm. So I, you know, I gave a talk at MIT about earning to give and Sam Bankman-Fried was there and he went <laughs> and earned to give and now he's doing rather well. Like yeah. that was, um, yeah, that was a really pretty important impact. Similarly, like um, I met Leopold Aschenbrenner because he got kind of involved with Global Priorities Institute and I mm. managed to convince him not to go to law school and now he's working at the Future Fund having just enormous impact there. Mm. It kind of relates to the mental health thing a bit something at least I find helpful in my own case. It's like, okay, well, if I don't have any impact, at least <laughs> <laughs> at least I'll keep kind of doing good through these yeah. people that I've like helped to nudge in a more positive direction. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that that is kind of the issue. <laughs> There's this general problem that can be, I guess, for, for the effective altruism community or indeed like any, any group of people whatsoever, it's very easy to focus on what things are going wrong and what, what people you think are making mistakes at any given point in time. But to motivate themselves, people yeah. need like a appreciation and, and encouragement, uh, just as we've been talking about. Yeah. And there's like, obviously, I, th- I think at any point, you know, there's hundreds of thou- or thousands of people in our like broader social networks mm. who are just, you know, go- going into work every day, doing this, doing things that aren't always like super appreciated yeah, or, or yeah. super, super understood, whose contributions ideally might, might get a bit more acknowledgement and understanding. Yeah. Is there any, anyone you'd like to, or any, any groups you'd like to shout out to now as doing something that's either, I guess, especially cool or yeah. just like unsung heroes who are, who are going in and, and, and doing the important work of maintaining and growing things every day? Okay. Yeah. I mean, loads of people I'd love to talk about. In terms of people that I just really value the work they do, which is often just a very unpleasant job, I think like Nicole Ross and Julia Wise at the CEA Community Health Team, Mm. I just really, really value what they do. And it's often just really tough dealing with, you know, their whole job is just dealing with messy issues and problems, often in a kind of thankless way. Um, And so, yeah, I just have huge, huge respect and kind of gratitude for them. Mm. In terms of people doing stuff that's really cool, uh, there's a project that got set up fairly recently that I guess over the course of the pandemic, so I only properly learned about it um, a few weeks ago, which is the Lead Exposure Elimination Project. Mm. And Claire Donaldson was giving the talk I was at. I think she's, there's three employees and they're all directors. And this is just so good mm. <laughs> um, because, so my understanding is that, the, you know, a literature review was done, I think by the Rethink saying, hey, actually, 
um, reducing lead exposure seems like it could be this enormously cost-effective thing. Mm. And then Claire and others set up this organization while being incubated at Charity Entrepreneurship. Mm. And then on the basis of what so far shoestring budget, they have now convinced the government of Malawi to eliminate lead paint. And it was amazingly simple <laughs> the way they did this, which is going to Malawi, buying loads of paint, mm. running a test, like a very, as I understand it, pretty simple test to mm. see the lead concentrations. Mm. For many types of paint, the lead concentrations were extremely high. And lead is extremely damaging to both like health and brain development. And they, you know, conducted the study, then they went to the government of Malawi. Turns out Malawi actually already had regulation. <laughs> so it wasn't that they even needed new regulation. Uh, they just weren't enforcing it. They just weren't enforcing it. Mm. And so from there, on the basis of that study, I think they were just relatively easily able to convince the government to say, okay, no, actually, we're going to start enforcing this. Yeah, that, um, that's incredible. And that's just amazing. Like, what like quick turnaround to impact yeah. on doing this thing that's just very clearly, very, you know, broadly making the world better. Mm. And so, yeah, I was just like, I don't know, in terms of like things that kind of get me up in the morning and make me excited to be part of this community, that was definitely learning about that project is definitely one of them. Yeah. Yeah, the, the new charity entrepreneurship organizations, well, they really punch above their weight in my mind in terms of just like all of the, like it's, it's amazing to see these cool new things going on that for some reason no one else was, was really doing. Absolutely. Uh, I met Andres last night, who is one of the founders of the Shrimp Welfare Project. I don't know that they've had any, any uh, quite as big wins as this lead paint thing, but I think they're the first group of people kind of ever focused on shrimp welfare in mm. particular, like uh, you know, prawns and yeah, shrimp yeah. and crustaceans just generally, even among like animal well-being groups tend to get completely Completely, completely ignored. So yeah. they're almost the first people like looking at how do you farm shrimp and like what improvements could be made yeah. uh, such that it's like economically doesn't perhaps uh, cost anything particularly to the farmers. So you could get a lot of uptake, but, mm -hmm. uh, but the shrimp don't suffer as much because of the incredible crowding that they're yeah. typically exposed to. Yeah, I think one reason I just, yeah, love stuff like this, I think just for EA community as a whole, just the value of getting concrete wins mm. is just really high. And so, you know, you can imagine a community that is entirely focused on movement building and technical AI safety. Mm. And then it's like... One could imagine. One could imagine, <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, that, those are you know, big parts of the AI community. But, yeah. well, if the community was all of that, it's like, are you actually doing anything? Mm. I mean, it's really helpful for, like, in terms of just health of the overall community and culture of the community to be doing many things that like, no, we are like concretely, demonstrably making the world better. And this gets, I think there's a misunderstanding that people can often have of, you know, kind of core long-termist thought where you might think, and certainly from on the basis of what people tend to say, at least in writing on, when talking in the abstract, oh, you should just think everyone should work on AI safety, let's say, or AI mm. risk, or if not, then bio, and then nothing else kind of really matters. Mm. It's pretty striking that when you actually get ask people and get them making decisions, no, they're like interested in like a way broader yeah. variety of things, often in ways that like, yeah, often in ways that are not that predictable necessarily mm. from like what they've just said in writing. So like the case of lead exposure elimination project, one thing that's funny is EAs and names, like, <laughs> this is like always the most literal names, <laughs> the Shrimp Welfare Project. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, what, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's so called LEAP, right? So LEAP, the Lead yeah. uh, Elimination Project? Lead uh, Elimination, Lead Exposure Shrimp. Elimination Project. Okay, yeah. Anyway, very literal mm. name. We know what it's about. <laughs> uh, but I saw, you know, I saw the talk. I was like, okay, you made sure that Claire was applying to Future Fund. And I was like, 
I was like, okay, yeah, we've, we've got to fund this. And kind of because the focus is long-term is giving, mm. I was like, oh, maybe it's going to be a bit of a fight internally. And then it came up in the Slack and everyone was like, oh, yeah, we've got to fund this. And it was just like, <laughs> no easy, just no brainer. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone was like, yep, totally on board. Yeah. And why is that? Well, it's because there's more like a kind of rational market now, efficient, mm. something like efficient market of giving where the marginal stuff that like could or could not be funded in AI safety is mm. like, well, the best stuff's been funded. <laughs> yeah. And so the marginal stuff is like much less clear, whereas mm. something in this kind of broad long-termist, so like, you know, reducing people's exposure to lead, including mm. brain and other health development. And especially if it's like, oh, we're actually making like real concrete progress on this, like really on really quite a small budget as well. Yeah. It's like, that just looks really good. Mm. <laughs> like we can just fund this. And it's low down, it's like no downside as well. Yeah. And so I think that's something that, people might not appreciate is just like how much that sort of work is valued, mm. even by the most kind of hardcore long-termist. Yeah, yeah, I think that, or just like the level of like intuitive emotional enthusiasm that people have about these things as well. I think oh, would, yeah, would like sure. actually really surprise folks who have the impression that it's just, <laughs> you know, if you talk to you or me, that we're, like it's, we're just like AI or bust or something like oh, that. Oh, right, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Where there's no, like this is, yeah, this is really getting people out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Okay, let's push on to the main topic for today, which is how the overall situation for people who want to improve the world along the kinds of lines that we discussed in the show has, uh, how that situation has shifted over the last couple of years, and maybe how this ought to affect the kind of culture that we're aspiring to to develop uh, and the sorts of projects that we're trying to get launched and off the ground and, and expanding. We're recording a couple of days before Effective Altruism Global London uh, in, in April 2022, which Effective Altruism Global, for people who don't know, is this kind of get together for people who are working on the question of how to do the most good in the world and trying to figure out how, how they can make the biggest contribution themselves. And I think this one is the biggest ever. That's uh, right. 1,300 people. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think this is actually this is actually the first one that I'm not going to so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> after after all these years. Um, yeah. It's like it's like Burning Man Philob now. It's okay. like, oh, it's, it's, <laughs> not, it's not cool anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I was there at the beginning. Yeah. It's like it was four people it's, in yeah. a seminar room. Yeah, yeah. Effective action, too, it's too big now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it is actually incredible just the, the, sh- the number of people and the caliber of the people at these uh, events. I mean, yeah, so I went to the last yeah. one and I was just like constantly blown away. But anyway, yeah, the, the unofficial theme for... For this particular conference is a uh, culture of ambition, and uh, I know you have a whole lot of a whole lot of thoughts on that topic. And I think you're giving a keynote about that. Uh, I'm giving the opening talk. Opening time. talk, yeah. So yeah, how do you think people who are serious about you know improving improving the world in, in a kind of effective altruism mindset uh, way, how how should their attitude and approach potentially have shifted over the last couple of years? Yeah, well, so yeah, this theme is a culture of ambition, and you know why if you're altruistic should you try and be very ambitious or have ambitious plans? And I think there's a few reasons for that. So one is kind of more theoretical. So if you think the distribution of impact is a fat-tailed distribution, mm. that means that your the mean impact is bigger than the median. Mm. <laughs> so if you just aim to do kind of a typical amount of good, <laughs> then you're going to do much less good in expectation. And uh, I think plausibly it's like the expected value of the good that you do that matters than if you're like really aiming for the best. And that's because in the nature of the distribution, the best outcomes are just way, way better than the, you know, just kind of typical outcomes. Mm. And so there's kind of this, you know, theoretical case. And we've seen that in practice as well. So, I mean, I think it's just, it's clearest if you look at people learning to give, because, you know, there we can just put a number, <laughs> assign a number yeah. and like uh, the impact they're going to have at least the impact in terms of donations. Yeah. Where 
just the distribution of how much money you can make from careers that you might go into earning to give is just clearly this fat tail distribution. Mm. And so when we look at um, the people who've you know earned the most in order to donate um, via earning to give, mm. well, it's enormously driven by those FTX um, yeah. now. So Dustin Moskowitz, obviously another major donor. My understanding is that he got into giving kind of after co-founding Facebook. Mm. Um, I, mean, I guess I don't know about his motivations before that, whether he was always planning to give. Yeah, But certainly for... Sam and the other only employees at FTX, like their aim was to make money in order to donate it. And uh, yeah, the amount they've raised now is just, you know, very large compared to how much they could have made if they'd say Sam had stayed working at Jane Street, for example, which yeah. even though Jane Street is like a very well-paying quantitative trading firm. Yeah. So many listeners will have listened to the interview with Sam Bankman fried but a couple won't have. So yeah. it, might, it might be worth saying something quickly about like, yeah, the kind of sums that we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. So Sam intends to give away essentially all of his wealth, like 99%, mm. as do the other early employees, I, is my understanding. I don't know the details for each person. Sam's net worth at the moment was estimated by Forbes to be $24 billion. Mm. Um, Gary Wang, who has uh, helped create FTX, his net worth is now public at about $6 billion. Mm. And there are a few other early employees of FTX who are also doing it for earning to give reasons as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, we are talking about very large sums of money now. Yeah, so go, go on. Okay, uh, yeah. How, so, yeah, what, what, what implications does that have? Yeah. So that's just an illustration in practice of this fact that, okay, impacts can be fat-tailed. And that was, mm. we focused on earning to give, that's nice and quantifiable. Yeah. But I'm sure this is true as well in other areas. Within politics, if you manage to become a head of state, then you're really having very unusually large impact. If you're, you know, doing research, being one of like the seminal researchers, mm. going to have, you know, enormous impact compared to if you're kind of a typical researcher. And that really means that if you want to do as much good and expectation as possible, ideally you should be aiming for those like, you know, best case outcomes. Yeah. And probably you'll fail. Mm. <laughs> um, more likely than not. So when Sam set up FTX, he thought it was a 20% chance of succeeding and he was being relatively optimistic. Mm he thought at the time. But, you know, obviously he did end up being successful, but yeah. even if you divide that by five, <laughs> <the expected value, laughs> still number, it's yeah. still bigger and it's bigger yeah. than what he would have made if he'd stayed at Jane Street. Yeah. And so similarly, I think when people have looked into this, like, should you go into politics? Obviously it's extremely hard to become, let's say in the UK, an MP and, and even harder again to become, say, the prime minister. Mm. But probably like the chance of achieving one of these best case outcomes mm. is plausibly where much of the expected value comes from. And I think the same could be true for um, the search and other career paths. Yeah, so it seems like over the last 10 years, we've had a decent number of people who've had this kind of yeah, swing for the fences approach to, to mm -hmm. their careers or to, or to doing good. Do you think we're still kind of short of what would be, what would be optimal in terms of how risk-taking people typically are? I think we should expect that to be the case mm. where you know, this is a way in which kind of altruistic reasoning might be quite different from mm. self-interest. Again, it's kind of easiest on thinking about earning to give where, you know, if you're just earning money for yourself, then the difference between making 100,000 and 200,000 is like really great. The yeah. difference between making a million a year and a million 100,000 a year is not, yeah. not nearly as great. Whereas altruistically, plausibly those differences matter about Close basically about as much. Yeah. yeah. And that's quite an unusual thing to kind of think about. Yeah. And certainly my attitude coming into all of this was very much not thinking in the, 
oh, wow, what's the, like, what are the really big things I could potentially achieve? And then really going out to try and do them. Yeah. You know, when, when I um, started giving with giving what I can, I, like, I thought my personal donations were going to be most of my impact mm. um, in the course of my life. I remember talking to Toby and he thought, well, maybe one day we'll have a part-time sex to me. And I was like, no way. Like, <laughs> well, this, that will never be worth it. Yeah. Um, and I guess you were planning to pursue a fairly like normal career with a typical salary. Exactly. Uh, giving, yeah. giving what? I suppose more than, more than 10% was, was your pledge, but still we're talking in the like 10,000 pounds or something a year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, t- maybe tens of thousands, mm. but not, um, yeah, exa- exactly. Not enormous sums. And so, and there's also just a kind of modesty thing, like, you know, Silicon Valley does a lot to kind of encourage this culture of, you know, really kind of trying to think big. And, mm. you know, I think the natural ways you can poke fun of that is often kind of justifiable when it's uh, yeah. grandiose or unjustified. But they have a point. But yeah, if you're trying to do as much good, I think we should take these these facts seriously. And it is just kind of an unintuitive thing where it's like, okay, I want to have some really big, yeah, big plan. It might feel kind of like overly self-important or something, but I think it's at least something that you've really got to think about. Yeah. So the clearest examples here are within, in the money case where it's easily measurable. I guess an, another case where I think there are instances in our, in our head that we can't talk about as much is in politics, mm-hmm. uh, where it seems like there's been a few outlier cases where a few people have done an enormous amount of, of really valuable work, mm-hmm. but can't be as public about it just because of the nature of the of the industry. Yeah. But one lesson is like looking at all of those experiences, we're kind of getting confirmation of this idea that we tentatively had that maybe the the right way to go if you're trying to maximize your impact is to take these high risk, high return approaches to yeah, choosing your career, you know, yeah. start, start a business that will probably fail, but could be enormous if it succeeds or like try to become a senator rather than, or try to become a national senator rather than a yeah. state senator, that, that sort of thing. But I guess there's this other thing, which is that now we've got all of this extra funding. Yeah. It's like yeah. enabling people, I guess, to be much more risk loving than perhaps than would have been reasonable or sensible 10 years ago. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we now just are in this position where we've been fortunate enough that we have like a lot of financial capital that we can use to do good things. And that gives us a moral responsibility to try to use it well. Mm. And that does mean, so, you know, effective altruism started with this idea of, you know, you have this tiny amount of funding, mm. um, you know, like in from the Oxford Fed, at least of effective altruism, that's me and Toby, and we're thinking about how to spend a thousand pounds or something, mm. maybe 10,000 pounds among different pre-existing organizations. Mm. And so you're just thinking about like what marginal difference you can make. Whereas now it's like, okay, what projects could you start? That's mm. like a serious question because you could like have funding for them. Yeah. And then secondly, not just what project could you start that would have the highest cost effectiveness with a marginal use of funding, mm. but what could scale? Right. Um, because even if you've got one organization that's half as cost effective, but can use 10 times as much funding, well, by setting that up, you will do five times as much good. Um, right. I mean, well, not quite, but uh, <laughs> to a first approximation. Yeah. And that's just a very different way of reasoning mm. than what effective altruism kind of started with. And this is more true, I should say, on the long-termist side of things. So mm. I think it is still true in uh, near-term giving as well, because... Yeah. I certainly mean, things the, have shifted in that direction relative to where they were before. Yes, yeah, so that's right. I mean, especially because, I mean, the near-termist giving, or I should say global health and well-being giving... I mean, that's scaling up much faster than the long-termist giving, where GiveWell are now aiming to be moving a billion dollars a year. I think the Open Philanthropy, Global Health and Wellbeing team are, um, my guess is that they're shooting for something like half a billion a year. I think it'll be a while, probably, before long-termist giving amounts to that amount. 
But the difference is that there are very few pre-existing organizations focused on promoting long-term value or like explicitly focused on that. Yeah. Um, so there's more in the way of like creating new things. Um, that has to be done. To fund. Yeah, that has to be done. Whereas yeah. in the case of global health and development, still huge funding gaps in you know, bed nets and cash transfers and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Mathematically, the, the mental switch is from thinking about benefit divided by cost, which is like mm-hmm. cost effectiveness, yeah. to thinking about benefit minus the cost, which is like total impact, basically. Yeah. yeah. And the odd thing is that you can have a project that is, say, half as cost effective. So the benefit divided by the cost is half as good. Yeah. But if it can be 10 times as bigger, it, that is, if it can absorb like 10 times as much cost, yeah. uh, then it will do more good in total. Yeah. So in as much as you're finding it hard to fund like anything that solves a particular problem, then you care about the the second one. Or in as much as you have like close to like unlimited funding on the margin or you're not like yeah. giving up something uh, like incredible, like an incredible project that is actually working uh, yeah. to, to, to solve the problem that you care about on the margin, then you care about this benefit minus cost. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I think is particularly hard for, you know, it's creating scalable projects, something yeah. I think that's particularly hard for the kind of more long-termist giving. Yeah, one term I only heard, I think, for the first time about a year ago was mega projects. Uh, yeah. Is that, a, is that a, a coinage of yours? Or uh, So in this context, it is a coinage of mine. Um, yeah. I think it's not necessarily the best coinage because <laughs> think... it does also refer to a term that Oh, it's like Flyberg huge infrastructure. Uses, oh, yeah, 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 which are these huge bureaucratic <laughs> infrastructure projects that like, very famously like massively overrun in cost and they're like <laughs> don't justify themselves. It's like the Burj so, Khalifa or, so, or yeah. Yeah, or like dams that are kind mm. of enormously expensive. And so the better term might be massively scalable projects. Okay. So that kind of gets across more gets across more what we care about, which is maybe you're starting small, but the point is you're starting small to build something that could become have a very large total impact. Yeah. Um, rather than you're starting off with, you know, a thousand person organization that's, mm. um, you know, very bloated or something. Yeah. Are there any examples of massively scalable projects that, you know, plausibly long-termists or people involved in effective altruism should be piling onto that, that are worth like highlighting so people can get the concept? So one project I'm particularly excited about and advising on is media. So documentaries, potentially also TV shows, movies, and Natalie Cargill is leading on that working with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And that's something that, you know, I think can be hugely impactful. So media in the past, I mean, we've had this recently with respect to existential risk of Don't Look Up, I think has had a mm. kind of big influence. But the movies Deep Impact and Armageddon were helpful mm. <laughs> in terms of getting the Space Guard program to uh, detect near-Earth asteroids yeah. uh, set up. I mean, fiction such as Ghost Fleet, and uh, the Cobra event have also been helpful for... What's Ghost Fleet? I haven't heard Ghost of that. Ghost Fleet is about lethal autonomous weapons. Oh, right. Okay. By a different Peter Singer. Okay. <laughs> Peter W. Singer, um, who huh. my understanding is that he wrote just tons and tons of like policy and these academic articles mm. and just no nope. one listened to him. So he wrote, he wrote a novel okay. that has these elaborate footnotes, <laughs> um, uh, you know, explaining why it's more representative. Yeah. Um, I've not read the book. I, I may be misrepresenting it. Yeah. Uh, but that got much more attention than the papers ever did. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So this is something where, you know, can you like often requires larger amounts of money in order to have an impact. You can often get the, you know, make an investment of it as well. Mm, yeah. um, but, you know, potentially has um, potential for huge cultural influence. So that's one thing I'm excited about. 
So I suppose, yeah, the, the virtue of massively scalable, I was about to say mega projects, but massively scalable <laughs> projects is just that they can potentially do more good in total by, by absorbing lots of money in like very useful ways, if not like the very most useful ways uh, yeah, imaginable. Yeah. yeah, are there any important downsides to having this mentality? I guess we've, we've slightly alluded to, to one already with the mega projects comparison. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think there are many, yeah, there are many risks and many things we should be paying attention to. And uh, this has been, you know, I'm very happy to see this discussed in the EA forum um, mm. a bit recently as well. So one is just extravagance. Mm. So I uh, recently, when I had this journalist um, or writer visiting, I took a little tour around Memory Lane and showed him some of the kind of old sites. And we went to the office that was the first CEA office we mm. had, which is in this estate agent <laughs> that you had to go in and then like walk down the... Um, into the basement and it was this like yeah. almost lightless room yeah. and we had like 12 people kind of stuffed in there mm. you know, everyone on their laptops i remember a funder early donor to cea fred Mulder, when he saw it he was like is that legal <laughs> i think I it mean, probably was no I, and i think we we thought it might not be legal at yeah. the time and we decided just not to <laughs> yeah, not, not to pursue not, that not to there's probably some health and safety we were getting well, in the way of but so there was one room that was like okay to work and i remember but there was another room that where i think i had to crouch in order to like get in there and it had no windows whatsoever yeah, you'd have people were like is... regularly working in there and taking meetings and yeah yeah I, <laughs> um it was i was just i was so happy to see it again it was yeah. like, um because it's the last time actually before it gets turned into a different office so that was the kind of you know mentality the mm. mentality in which effect felt was founded and i think it's like, it's important that we maintain that as best we can, mm. where, you know, it feels kind of morally appropriate relative to the problems of the world, the severity of poverty, the amount of suffering, the, like, gravity of the risks we face, to be in a basement, mm. working, you know, working in this close environment. Yeah. What feels morally appropriate is, like, different from, like, what's actually best. Mm. But there are risks of, like, if we just start throwing money around or something, and, well, like, take a third party, mm. how are they, you know, they're not going to be able to tell yeah and so we want to make sure that we're still conveying the level of moral seriousness that we really have and so it does mean some things like like my attitude to my own giving for example um mm. has kind of i've increased <laughs> my um commitment to that um oh. where it's kind of this funny thing where when i first started donating i was like oh well, that's going to be most of my impact on my life so i was like this mm. is really important and it's like oh it's you know we're raising a lot of money it's not really how i'm going to have impact so I don't know, I felt more like confused about it. And now I'm like, okay, no, it's more important again. Because <laughs> okay. now that we've got so much funding, I want to, you know, really demonstrate that like, I am not doing this for any sort of financial gain to myself. Mm. Um, I'm doing it because it's, I want to try and make the world better. Yeah. And I think that could be true for other sorts of moral commitments as well. Being vegetarian or vegan, I know someone who donates a kidney and I'm like, okay, this guy is morally serious. <laughs> like, right. I mean, yeah. I have both my kidneys, I should. Okay, so... There's the like appearances issue that if you just start throwing money around, people might lose trust that actually you're doing yeah. this for ethical related reasons at all. Is there yeah. an, is there another aspect to it as well, or is it like yeah. is it kind of important to signal to yourself that like things are serious so that you don't just become blasé about what you're doing? Yeah, so I think there's a few issues related to yeah mission drift here. So one is other people might start you know joining the community with not with the best of intentions. Mm. That's again something like, you know, we should be on guard for. Another thing that we should worry about is if people start, you know, having motivated reasoning. Right. <laughs> if yeah. there's um, some things that donors believe and others don't, mm. um, then 
oh, maybe it's more well, convenient to, to also go believe that with, as well. Yeah. So we are trying to combat that quite directly. So Future Fund has this League Dancers program. So people now will have their own independent kind of funds that they can distribute. Mm. And it's presumptively approved uh, precisely in order to avoid, you know, this intense consolidation of kind of funding power. Yeah. We're also considering having pri- change our worldview prizes. Mm. <laughs> so just like if you can shift our credences on important topics like you know what's the magnitude of ai existential risk or something yeah you can shift it by a certain amount you win a prize, <laughs> you, win a prize yeah. you get money yeah and yeah so i think that's another way in which this kind of influx of resources could be bad and we really need to again kind of yeah be very kind of guarded against and then a the kind of final worry is just yeah something that's less like explicit motivated reasoning and more just you lose kind of evolutionary pressure mm. that we want to we want to and um definitely previously had cultivated so mm. with startups and companies those that aren't profitable go out of business yeah and there's this classic problem in the nonprofit world that doesn't happen for bad charities yeah and there would definitely be a worry that okay if there's plenty of funding for various kind of ea oriented projects well mm. the bad ones still they just ma- still manage to get funding and right. they kind of part it along even if the people would be better used somewhere else yeah and the, and the and, trouble there is so they're absorbing funding and that's some cost but the real problem is that they're absorbing people who could be doing something substantially better exactly uh, if only yeah. the funders said you know we think we we think you can do better than this exactly and there it's not like everyone has good intentions you know people are maybe like a bit biased in favor of their own thing but it's extremely natural yeah so there's nothing untoward going on you just you know you've lost a bit of what might be kind of healthy ruthlessness where yeah certain bad projects um or projects that are yeah not as effective shouldn't keep going and so i think yeah i think that means we should really celebrate organizations that just choose to not exist so mm. no lean season was an example of this mm. um, it's a bit of a shame because people forget about them because they're not around it, anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no lean season was an excellent organization working on promoting seasonal uh, migration to the cities which was beneficial economically uh, they went through y combinator i was in the same batch as one of them they're clearly very promising did an rct on the program wasn't as effective as they had initially hoped they just shut down yeah it's like i was just like this is amazing <laughs> when does this happen this is so good yeah um and so yeah i think we should really and this is particularly important if we've got this kind of culture of ambition framing this like oh really try and aim if you can for the best possible outcome while avoiding risks of doing harm because most attempts will fail <laughs> and mm. that means you know you have 10 people let's say they all try and do their non-profit startup one of them perhaps is you know really crushes it and is the best mm. Probably what should happen is that the other nine shut down and join that one. Yeah. And that's but, very hard psychologically. And, yeah. you know, that's that takes some kind of cultural engineering to encourage that as something that can be really rewarded. Yeah. And there won't be the pressure to create that culture if everyone can get can get funding. Exactly. Uh, it, yeah. Exactly. So like, wow, it's, you know, the marginal project is pretty mediocre. This is mediocre. We'll just fund this as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so it's very tough where it's, on the one hand, you know, we really want people to be starting projects, especially projects that can potentially scale. But we, you know, we really want to maintain this culture where, you know, people have high moral standards, people are able to still demonstrate moral seriousness. And also just that we still have these, you know, incentive and evolutionary mechanisms in place. Yeah, that last one makes sense to me that 
the idea that it's like more important to potentially be giving or making sacrifices or not spending money, kind of the more mm. money you have, in order to like show other people that you're serious and to like maintain your own seriousness, there's something that's a bit perverse about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so from one point of view, you might say, it's important to show other people that I'm morally serious by continuing to give money to the point where it, where it hurts, say, where it's mm-hmm. like where I'm actually like sacrificing money that I would have spent on myself in a way that, that mm-hmm. I would have recognized as, as, as enjoyable. But on the other hand, you might, sometimes I see people who are like engaging in projects that are trying to make the world better mm. and they're kind of cutting corners on spending here mm. and there. They're like, you know, they'll get inconvenient flights, for example, yeah, yeah. Um, because they don't want to be too lavish. They don't want to spend yeah, money yeah. on, you know, the flights that leave at a convenient time for them so they can yeah. get a good night's sleep. And to me, that strikes me as like not morally serious because yeah, yeah, they're yeah. not taking the work that they're doing as being important enough to actually put appropriate like resources into. Yeah. And I mean, the case might be clearest for you, where it's like, wait, well, you're doing enormously important work, like pretty clearly, and you're like overloaded with like opportunities to do mm-hmm. really valuable stuff. But maybe, maybe the morally serious thing to do is to bite the bullet and say, no, I'm going to spend a whole lot of money on myself so that I never have to worry about finances. I'm just going to like get whatever flights I want, like yeah. live wherever I like. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and, and when people say like, I'm not serious, no, it, it's because I'm serious that I'm doing this. Yeah. So there's a couple of important things there. So yeah, one is just, you know, I was saying this as, you know, it's, it's a consideration. It's not like the over, overwhelming thing. Mm. And, you know, I, it's not like I recommend my level of giving to everybody. Uh, and I'm also just in a weird position in the world. Yeah. The thing I will say, though, is like giving a very large proportion of your income is a costly signal in the evolutionary biology sense. Yeah. Where if, in fact, you are morally motivated, it's easier for you to do that mm. than if you're not morally motivated. Whereas spending a lot of money taking, you know, flights and saving your productivity and like doing other things to save productivity yeah. is not a costly signal because it's equally easy to do that if you are morally motivated and if you aren't. Yeah. And that's why there's a difference in, you know, what you're conveying to other people. And sometimes, I don't know, the word signaling has gotten this mm. like bad rep, but it's like unclear whether people are meaning it in the technical sense or not. Mm. And like virtue signaling is like this really bad thing. And I'm like, surely it's good to have have virtue virtue, and then it's good to signal it if you're incredibly signaling it then you actually are virtuous exactly unfortunately the word seems to mean like fake signaling now like yeah you're essentially lying right um but if it's like a true costly signal no you're giving information about what sort of person you are Hmm. and so there are is a cost as well though which is how much kind of like do you just do in fact do less good so like how much are you willing to pay for this costly signal yeah um in my own case i just like this balancing act of you know, I expense things that are work-related. And so I have mm. like a relatively clean division between, yeah, work-related expenses and personal expenses. Yeah. Um, I still lose, obviously you can't expense everything. So it is the case that I lose my, it's hard to estimate, but mm. I don't know. I estimate maybe I lose like two days worth of time. I see. As a result of having relatively high personal giving compared to if I was spending a lot more on myself. Yeah. But it's, that feels worth it to it's me. It's probably a price worth paying. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And for other people, it, would, it wouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, when I read, there's been some interesting uh, articles out lately, basically raising these points that, you know, it's like obviously all things considered good that there's like more yeah. funding available for great projects to prevent pandemics yeah, and yeah. You know, prevent asteroids from hitting Earth and, and, and so on. But people who have like, who have started being worried about these these yeah. perverse effects are potentially affecting the community and you know harming people's behavior in, in years yeah. to come. One thing when I, when I read them, very often I I can't help but have this feeling that they're motivated in part by an aesthetic judgment that people mm. find, like you were saying, 
even if you rationally think that trying to become a senator is the right way, is the best way for someone to try to do the most good, one can't help but kind of have an aesthetic revulsion to that because of the narcissism that it seems yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. to embody. And likewise, even if you think on reflection that someone should be getting the business class flight so they can sleep on the, on the mm-hmm. plane and, and, you know, perform best in the meeting, <laughs> there's just something kind of disgusting about that too. Yeah. I think many people who haven't grown up with that kind of wealth and yeah. And, but aesthetics is like not a reason <laughs> to, to yeah. do things. And it's kind of very hard to balance the rational side of things yeah. with, uh, or to like make sure that you're not indulging too much in just your aesthetic preferences and thereby making projects worse than yeah. they could be. Yeah, I'm laughing because I had a conversation about this topic with this writer who um, hmm. seems to keep coming up in this conversation. <laughs> and he really remarked and they had this sentence that was talking about how working in a basement feels like the morally appropriate thing. Mm. But then over the course of the sentence, I started using the word aesthetic rather than moral. Mm. And he thought that was pretty notable. And I agree that there's, I mean, you could call it aesthetic. Non-consequentialists at least would think there is this idea of like what's an appropriate Mm. kind of response to the world that is different from, you know, what does the most good. Mm. I think even if, even with the non-consequentialist hat on, the stakes are just so high. It's just going to yeah. over override this. Like we're in an emergency situation. Right. So doing what is appropriate, at least from one lens, is kind of morally indulgent or something. Yeah. I think the important thing is though, well, we do want to appeal to, you know, morally serious, morally motivated people. And for them, the natural reaction <laughs> yeah, is disgust. Well, yeah, is this... Um, or at least skepticism. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also a very reasonable reaction. Yeah. And that's not to say that we shouldn't do all these things. In fact, investing in, you know, stuff that helps productivity, um, mm. like you should have the best lap. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still have like... A good, have a good laptop, have, have a good desk, have a good office chair. Mm. Um, don't, you know, when I was younger, I spent 18 hours in Doha airport to save myself <laughs> 45 pounds. Like <laughs> nowadays, <laughs> do, that's do not... Do the math. Yeah, yeah not, that, nowadays that's not a good use of money if you're doing like important work. But like we should be sensitive to the fact that that's like a it's, you know a weird situation to be in. Yeah. Even when it you know if we look at say salary norms as well, where it's a weird and I think unfortunate kind of cultural norm that nonprofit salaries are like radically below market rates. Yeah. And such that like people can find it weird if a nonprofit is paying closer to market rates. Mm. So it's at least just something like we need to like bear in mind, and certainly like when there are easy cases to like not appear profligate Mm. uh we should avoid them if people are like really taking on this lesson and trying to be as ambitious as they can in in their career what might be the 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 barriers to doing that that's a great question i think a biggest barrier is just taking seriously you know what could some of these best case you know scenarios look like Mm. a second is then also often just and how could you do that quicker too (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, i mean there's this classic kind of silicon valley question of okay, what's the best possible success you can imagine for the project you're working on? Hmm. Now, how could you do that in six months? (laughs) Um, Where often at least achieving very big things does mean like having to go somewhat quickly as well. Again, for all of this stuff, like emphasizing that we need to pay attention to risks of harm as well. Hmm. So, you know, don't do, don't do crazy things that are going to like taint the well of some area or like promote info hazards or something like that. Hmm. So I think the biggest thing is just like actually thinking about like, yeah, what are some of the best case outcomes I could imagine? Yeah. Um, a second, and I think as a kind of important thing is doing things such that you feel okay about it, even if you fail. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting where 
you know, people go into science and there's this strong, like, because they're kind of intellectually motivated, they just want to do it for itself. And there's a strong norm in science that that's what kind of what you ought to do as well. That it's kind of weird to be going in with the aim of pursuing impact. Mm. And I have this hypothesis that that's actually kind of rational as a norm huh. because the people who go in and try and do impact, they, they're trying to get a guarantee of impact. Ah. <laughs> and that means you do something that's like not actually very good. <laughs> and so you're saying people, that they'll be perversely, they'll be motivated to be like less honest with themselves than someone who's like motivated just by the truth. Or they'll just be motivated to do something that's just not very fundamental or important. Mm. So you could do something that is, you know, taking some existing science and like applying it to some particular area. Whereas instead having, like this would at least, like it's the argument, instead having a like one in a hundred chance of like some really fundamental contribution Mm. is actually just much more important in expectation. I see. And so I think actually that doesn't motivate this true scientific norm of just do whatever you're interested in Mm. because I'd be really surprised if say work on string theory was going to, you know, a marginal string theorist was going to be as impactful as other things you could go into. Yeah. But the underlying thing of like, you should be pursuing something such that even though, you know, you're probably not going to have enormous impact. In fact, let's say your impact might be like close to zero. Mm. Nonetheless, you'll still be kind of, you know, motivated and able to pursue it. Yeah. Um, Because that's a little challenge. That's a little challenge, I think. You know, some people are maybe just happy to go with the EV calculations, but it's an unusual psychology. We're saying that that they're happy if like after the fact things have fallen apart and they haven't done any anything good. They they can look back and say, well, I made the right decision next Ante. Yeah. At every at every point I made a reasonable call on what to do. And so I'm satisfied. Yeah. But that's not is that 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 can be difficult to do. That can be difficult, but you could be doing something that you're intrinsically motivated by, such Mm. that, well, okay, I didn't have any impact in the end but i feel very happy it was like an intellectually rewarding life or a rewarding life in other ways yeah yeah for a while there's been this meme that you know in as much as we want people to take a lot of risk in their careers in order to try to have more expected impact that we need to (laughs) do more in order to reward people who have tried that and then haven't had impact that Mm. things haven't worked out for them which is going to be like the 90 percent or 99 percent of people yeah yeah, is there anything that we can like? Should we be giving people exit grants on on particular paths where we're saying, well, what you did didn't turn out to work at all, but we think it was a good call, Exante, so we're going to like pay you some money now. <laughs> I mean, it and, relates to the project shutting down idea. Like, I have wondered, should there be a, like a prize for yeah. you know on, <laughs> honorable failures? Yeah, um, where it's like, look, you did a really good Exante thing. We think your thing should shut down now, but yeah. like you should be rewarded for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess on a personal level, to some extent, you could do that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose one way to make it more palatable would be to make it a transition grant where you're like, okay, you were doing this thing that hasn't yeah. worked out, but now we're going to like give you a grant in order to move into something else, given that you're acknowledging that your original path isn't going to work. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I think, I mean, in general, probably people just kind of, you know, maybe stick to the existing paths kind of longer than they should. At mm. least that's what you would expect because moving is like, it's uncertain. You've got to have the time to think about what you're going to do next, but you're also working this way in a full-time role. Yeah. Um, and also kind of mark to market or, or like bite the bullet and accept that this thing that you've been working at, uh, yeah, you, exactly. you're, you're like actually throwing in the towel. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, if there are ways of making, you know, transitions easier, that seems, yeah, very promising as well. Yeah. Um, well, no, should we have someone who maintains kind of a hall of fame of like good ex-ante decisions? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, I mean, that would be like, I think that could be yeah. very, yeah, very cool. I mean, it's okay. the, the issue is often hard um, mm, to tell. Yeah, yeah, but I think 
because otherwise they do get forgotten. Like before I was prepping for this talk, I realized I hadn't really thought about Nolene season for several years. Mm. And it's just because they don't exist anymore. But yeah. it's absolutely great that they don't exist. <laughs> and yeah, we could do that on an you know, individual level as well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this seems like a kind of cool project for someone to take on, to create a website of, yeah, yeah a, a Hall of Fame of projects that didn't work out, but were good at the outset. Yeah. Um, just to acknowledge the, yeah, the, the good decision-making of the people and also their good decision to like give it yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I do have the sense that, I don't know how much it's due now, but certainly I was thinking this even of a year ago, that a lot of people in the effective altruism community feel kind of nervous or even insecure about, doing good i mean you know they're really worried about the problems it's very natural mm. really worried about the problems in the world worried about making a mistake and that that was providing a like motivation for doing kind of some safe option mm. where you know one worry was that's like just the things that are on the list of like open fill funded organizations or the atk kind of priority paths yeah whereas yeah you it's more precarious feeling mm. to be saying like no i'm actually going to do this different you know, yeah. something that's not on the list, because actually, I think like, if it does work out, it's um, yeah. going to be higher impact. And we get this amazing information of like, you know, this new path being more important. Yeah, but but also, I mean, the most difficult case is when like, you have some idiosyncratic view that other people don't agree with. And you're saying, mm. I'm going to deviate from like, what is typical and what is accepted mm. to do this other thing that I think will fail. Yeah. <laughs> and then so like, not only are people not paying me any respect now when I have the potential uh, yeah. to succeed, but the most likely thing is that it doesn't work out. And then people are definitely not going to like pay me any or like the risk, you know, the concern you would have is that no one's going to respect what you did. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't even like it at the beginning. And now it hasn't worked. Yeah, uh, that's a great example. But the benefits if it does right it's so huge so you want them to do it you really want them to do it but it yeah. shows why you have to just like i guess this is like another reason why you want to have a culture of like really appreciating people for what they're doing like kind of regardless of whether it's delivering benefits right now appreciating them for what they're doing and appreciating worldview diversity and disagreement yeah and again where this is i think this is an easy failure mode that people can fall into mm. where i think in general you just shouldn't judge someone's kind of epistemic virtue as it were by their beliefs. By so, whether they agree with you. <laughs> by whether they agree with you. Because that's what it ultimately has to come down to if that's your approach. Exactly. I mean, it is hard, like, and maybe you have some, but you know, if you're like, oh, no, the moon landings were fake. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and you're like, 9-11 was an inside job. Yeah. I'm like, okay, probably <laughs> at that point, yeah. um, you know, I'm probably just not going to, probably something's <laughs> gone wrong. Might not take a second uh, meeting. Yeah, yeah. gone that along at that point. But, you know, if someone instead is saying like, oh, I think existential risk from AI is, you know, one in a thousand or something, or mm. even perhaps even less, or that actually bio risk is like 90%, or I don't know, or just like lots of views yeah. that are like, actually, look, there's just a large range of reasonable disagreement. Like, Yeah, because these questions are so hard. Because the questions are, yeah, extremely hard. It's very like, and especially if you're a community that's trying to do action, and I'm like, and take the particular case of if I think an existential particular existential risk is high mm. and you think it's low mm. and perhaps even your arguments are good or like seem good because you're like a smart guy a quick reasoner mm. from my perspective you're this like existential threat because <laughs> right? yeah. you're going around like with what i would regard as like spurious um yeah. seeming arguments like oh my god i need to like silence you that might be mm. like the kind of first order thought that'll be the naive yeah idea exactly but no it's enormously important in fact, to kind of counter the natural tribal instincts of just wanting to clump together on the basis of, of your shared views, mm. to instead be like, no, this person's like a good thinker, and I disagree with their conclusions. Perhaps I, you know, trenchantly disagree with their um, mm. conclusions, 
but like we should really support them. Like that's a hard that's a hard thing to do psychologically, but I think it's very important for yeah. us to do. So the, the future fund has been one of the main things you've been working on since what we are the future wrapped up. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Well, what's your actual role in the whole project? Uh, I'm an advisor. So, I mean, I was just doing quite a variety of things, yeah, right. <laughs> is honestly. So, um, early stages, I was just really helping work with Nick on who should the early hires be, what is just the scope of what the fund is doing, how does it relate to other things happening at FTX and FTX Foundation mm. within the fund, like what are the most exciting projects, you know, where that's prizes versus having an open call versus the grantors versus just doing standard funding or versus should we like develop projects in-house yeah and then also yeah starting to just write up the website decide like what name should it have Mm. um one of the very early things we did was just start writing up this list of projects and then subtle questions about what's the culture as well right and yeah, I felt like I was able to add quite a lot of value in those things in the very early stages. Yeah. Um, yeah, what are you doing these days? Well, we've just had this open call, which was a big lift. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it was, um, we received 1,800 applications. 1,800, okay. And we <laughs> said we'd get back to everyone within 14 days. Um, <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> uh, I mean, we 90% hit that. Um, there were some people, it was more like 17 days. Okay. That's, um, that's incredibly impressive. But it's not, to be clear, that's like everyone gets a response within 14 mm. days. It's okay. not a yes or no. Right. So there's, yeah, a tale of, I mean, sometimes it was an easy yes, but then obviously there's an enormous number where it's just, yeah, there was a huge number that were clear no's. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Sam tweeted it. We got a lot of crypto applications. I see. That makes sense. <laughs> and then we got a lot of things that are just clearly just a nonprofit in a very different area submitting an mm. application. But there's just a lot that are like, you know, hard judgment calls. Yeah. And so at the moment, we're still kind of working through many of those kind of more difficult cases as well. And um, so you're really at the brass tax level here. You're, you're like, you're reading these applications and trying to decide. Yeah. Yeah. That's been last two weeks have been. Uh, <laughs> busy yeah a lot of what i've been doing it's, um, it's very different than what you've been doing before so which I guess is, <laughs> um yeah you're really back at the sharp end of like practical decision making relative to that i guess the philosophy and the global priorities research that you've been doing for the last five years that's right i mean it's no it's pretty notable how much um how driven by high level strategy grant making is where you know take bio grants for example i mean and this is not this is something i've had to learn rather than something i really knew about but um, well, what do, like what do you fund as a first heuristic? If something is a biomedical response to pathogens, mm. that is not very promising. As if you're concerned about these worst case pandemics, okay. um, for two reasons: uh, one is that they're often dual use technology, uh-huh. um, and then secondly, because very worst case pathogens will yeah typically be able to get around medical countermeasures. Right. Right. In contrast, kind of physical countermeasures. Mm. So um, far ultraviolet radiation to kind of sterilize mm. um, surfaces or super PPE, extremely good masks and so on that just literally don't let anything in. Mm. There it's just like, oh no, this literally could protect against absolutely everything. Right. And so just with that, like <laughs> kind of like yeah. high level strategic understanding of like the nature of bio-risk, wow, you've actually cut down the search space like enormously. Mm. And then I think that are, yeah, similar sorts of reasoning can apply in like other areas as well. Yeah. The thing that's tough is 
where there are these kind of strategic arguments for thinking that an area might be like very good, but not like definitely we need to fund this. Mm. And so it becomes just this kind of, yeah. The, the, more the, those like are the quantity. things that absorb the time. or Yeah, exactly. Or at least you really need to think about. So yeah, one thing has been, you know, work that we're doing to like applications we get to reduce the risk of war, for example. Right. Where, again, for my work, I think this is like enormously important. And I would say still kind of neglected, but within the long-termist community, the real difficulty is just like how tractable is this, mm. um, where you can fund things that are doing activities that seem plausible, mm. <laughs> but it's not like you get reliable feedback loops on this. And there's, you know, a bit of a question of like, okay, well, do we just go in on this, even if it is like shooting in the dark a little bit, yeah, or like not getting such reliable feedback loops, or do we just say, look, it's not because of that, it's not going to quite pass the bar for cost effectiveness yeah and did, yeah it's tough yeah i did, did an interview with chris blackman uh last mm. last week where we were talking about yeah what what causes violence what, what mm-hmm. causes war and the last section i was hoping to get answers to the, i basically yeah. was like you know we, we've thought that permitting war is really important for a long time yeah. but you know we're kind of at a loose end on what what to actually fund uh, do you have any ideas and the reality was i think yeah, yeah he, he didn't have a ton of ideas yeah. uh, which i suppose is to be expected but yeah and especially when you're concerned about you know, war between nuclear powers or great yeah. powers where you can build these data sets of conflict in the past and what's escalated and de-escalated conflict. Yeah. Does it, it apply? Yeah. I mean... He's got tons of things to say about preventing gang violence. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can preventing... get much larger data sets on gang violence. Whereas yeah. if you're concerned about a war between the US and China, it's like probably just details of the particular situation are going to matter a lot more than, you know, a data set that includes, you know, civil conflict from the 1900 or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I spoke with Sam, he was really advocating for this approach to evaluating the grants where it's, you know, you spend one minute reading the grant and Mm -hmm. then you say, you know, if I spent another week uh, Mm. evaluating this topic, like how likely would it be to change my decision? And if the answer is it probably wouldn't change the decision, then you just go like yes or no and then move on. Uh, I suppose with 1800 (laughs) applications, you kind of don't have much choice but to adopt that. uh, Well, yeah, I mean, bearing in mind that again, 90% Mm. of them were easy, easy no's. But there was one part of the, that conversation with Sam that really resonated with me where you've got a group of people discussing something and everyone thinks it should be funded. Yeah. But some people have concerns. Yeah. <laughs> they just want to talk about the concerns. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but even after the concerns, you, you still want to fund, fund it. it. It's like, yeah, yeah, but I think we should just feel a bit bad about that or something. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's in mode I think it's easy to get into and we should avoid yeah, it. Yeah, kind of avoid. I guess always be asking like, what is the decision? Or like, how is this decision relevant? Yeah. How is this going to affect what we're going to do exactly? Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the most exciting applications if, if you're able to, to, to share them at this point? Yeah. So we had, I mean, a lot of applications in bio and yeah, mm. reducing bio risk actually. Makes sense. Um, just, uh, yeah. So tractable. Well. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. It's better masks. It's far ultraviolet radiation. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so the bio application has been very exciting. Um, it's been really nice seeing some applications that just fit the kind of call for projects so mm. well. So one of the one of the project ideas was just getting more expert opinion. Mm. So at the moment, there's this IGM poll of economists, and if you want to know, like, what do expert economists think about? a certain issue, monetary policy or something. Yeah. Well, you can just look up a poll and <laughs> you get the answer. Mm. But remarkably, that exists really only for economists. Um, we could have it for many more fields. And so we wrote that up as a project idea. 
Um, and we got an application that's just bang on. And it's by <laughs> someone who seems really well qualified to do it. Wow. And we're like, oh, this is so nice. That's actually great to hear. There were a lot of grants in forecasting as well. Huh. Um, that's definitely yeah, it a seems kind really of growth. hot at the moment. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a growth area. So in, including, you know, organizations to just start training super forecasters and, hmm. you know, employing them and just really getting them to work on the most important decision relevant forecasts. I'm like really excited about that because it's still, yeah, it's still this kind of quite nascent field. Yeah, um, yeah it has a sense of a burgeoning area that like needs to mature a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there was another application as well. Yeah, again, another project for finding, yeah, talented and morally motivated youth in India and China, hmm. um, run by someone at EA Cambridge that was, yeah, I thought just seemed very strong and very exciting as well. Fantastic. Um, there was also non-trivial pursuits. That's one by being set up by Peter McIntyre. Oh, I've got... <laughs> one could consider it a competitor to 80,000 yeah, Hours. That's true. Yeah, um, it's a breakaway faction. Yeah. Exactly, run by a former 80,000 Hours employee. Yeah. Um, and... I mean, it's aimed at high school students mm. um, rather than kind of people who are old, older. So it's, it's, there is product differentiation from 80,000 hours. Yeah. Um, but honestly, we also just feel good about there being competition yeah. in the EA ecosystem. Like the number of times I've heard people say like, oh, I shouldn't do X because there's already a thing on X. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, we shouldn't start Google because Ask yeah. Jeeves has already so, got yeah. that covered. It's <laughs> like, no, this is not how like, yeah. you know, progress happens. Instead, like having this, you know, healthy, but... Yeah, shouldn't um, start a second com- university. Exactly. <laughs> there's yeah, already what, one. Exactly, what would be the point? <laughs> So yeah, we got this like, yeah, wide variety of, you know, excellent projects. And I think it did like, in some cases, incentivize people to like, just ask, actually ask for funding. Yeah. You know, like Kevin Esfeld, who just, you know, he's just the leading person in Mm. terms of reducing risk of worst case pandemics. And I think we did just kind of inspire them to think like, Oh yeah, actually, there's a, we are these ideas. I'm so glad you asked. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess one way that you could just make a big difference is people are sitting on these ideas, but they expect the process of finding funding or supporters to be incredibly painful and mm. arduous yeah, uh, and yeah. to like take them away from their normal job for longer than they can afford. Yeah. Uh, and you're saying like, no, yeah. <laughs> write us an email. Yeah, exactly. And if it's, you know, if it is good enough, it can be just a very painless process. Yeah. So. Yeah. The Future Fund has, has all kinds of interesting project ideas on the on the website. Are there any there that maybe you haven't already mentioned because maybe someone hasn't come forward to really uh, you know, t- take up the mantle, but, but they're really cool? Uh, yeah, I think the things that I'd feel most in favor of, one was the, you know, we put this as like the final, final one on the project list in order to give it emphasis, but is actually EA criticism. And Mm. I mean, it's kind of funny because I think EA criticism just is doing effective altruism research. (laughs) Yeah. Um, though, you know, there's obviously a spectrum between how much you like developing some already widely held view versus criticizing some widely held view. Yeah. But yeah, we wanted to give that special emphasis. To my knowledge, so I'm, you know, I'm not familiar with all of the grants, but I don't really know of anything, at least that came through that kind of was really excited about there. And then also on this, um, you know, I made this comment on one of the EA forum posts that was suggesting that there wasn't enough kind of criticism of core EA uh, beliefs or widely held EA beliefs. And yeah, I made this comment that was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that. I would just lo- like love to fund this stuff. Yeah. Um, here's my email. Um, <laughs> And got like a pretty, again, kind of disappointing response, actually. Like there was a a few people, you know, that is like, yeah, one thing I'm going to fund. But yeah, there was kind of a surprisingly um, little uptake. Like that it was, because I think it was the most upvoted comment ever on the forum. Right. Um, So there's a lot of like 
support for the, for the idea. But yeah. at the moment, like people are maybe, uh, um, yeah, still not feeling incentivized to work on it, perhaps. Yeah, I was surprised. So it sounded like some people had the impression that if they were too critical of common ideas that are that are held among people yeah, yeah. long termism, that this would be bad for their career, or yeah, yeah. it would be then harder to get grants. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm just like totally naive, but I kind of know a lot of the people who do the grants, and I'm like, no, they love this stuff. Because <laughs> honestly, we'll, yeah, yeah, I think it's the opposite. Yeah, but yeah, when we were developing the website, we got feedback from yeah a bunch of different sources, but one was Max Loza, hmm. who I know reasonably well. And our world and data is a potential grantee of a mm. um, future fund. And he gave brutal feedback on the <laughs> top of, um, of the website. And he wrote, like, I probably shouldn't do this as a potential grantee. And it was just like pages and pages wow. of like really pretty, but like, you know, insightful, yeah. but like um, biting like, criticism. Because Max is and German, Nick, so he tends to play he, it pretty straight. He yeah. plays it very straight. And Nick was just, Nick, who doesn't know Max, was just like, I love Max Loza. <laughs> He was just like, feeling so good about this. <laughs> yeah. And similarly, if you look at the forum and the most upvoted posts, like almost half of them are posts that are being critical of yeah. some widely held yeah, worldview. To be um, honest, I think we might have slipped in too far into the opposite direction where you can get like a lot of applause just for criticizing without... And people feel I, like if they if they applied too much critique to the or they like were too discerning about what critiques were good, then yeah. then that would shut down criticism. So they just tend to upvote anything that's negative, and that worries me. Uh, I think that can happen. I agree. Yeah. It's a bit. It can be a bit of a yeah applause yeah. light of its own. But what, yeah, I mean, and remember, you will remember the days of Holden Konofsky's The View of Miri. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is 2013 or yeah. something. And that became the most upvoted, <laughs> uh, less long post of all time at the time. Mm. And it was brutal. <laughs> it was really brutal. Um, so yeah. I think there just is a, a culture of people. Yeah. yeah, so it's a shame. I think there's just two things that are a shame. One is that people tend to perceive EA views as like this monolith, or especially like long-term views. And this was true for me as well, where, you know, a few years ago when I was like, okay, I'm going to start writing this book on long-termism. There's lots of areas I want to look into. And I just had this sense of like, oh, everyone believes X. And then it takes a while of digging in and you realize, okay, no, actually it's just that like a couple of people believe X and they happen to have been going around championing it. Mm. Or, you know, it's the most extreme view perhaps and therefore it's being like passed around. Or the most interesting, yeah. So one, yeah, one thing that's a shame is just that people regard views as like more monolithic and the more of an orthodoxy of things than it is and then the second thing is like people also just yeah feel worried about providing criticism when really that's actually just like very often just very well received yeah yeah so ftx as people might have heard seems like keen to get money out the door pretty pretty quickly if it's if it's possible to do that sensibly when we've spoken in the past, you've seen more sympathetic to kind of the arguments for more patient philanthropy, the kinds of things mm. that Phil Trammell outlined in episode 73 and that people might have might have seen online elsewhere. And that kind of mindset would potentially suggest that instead of like, you know, making grants as quickly as possible to, to get mm. resources applied in the in the real economy quickly, instead we should take the money, invest it in the stock market, let it accumulate for a long time, uh, and then give like much bigger grants in future. Yeah, why why the focus on using money now if if you're like quite sympathetic to this patient philanthropy point of view? Yeah, I mean my views on the patient philanthropy arguments haven't changed all that much. Hmm. Um so yeah, I still think that most of the good that we will be doing is later than 10 years rather than in the next 10 years. But there's two things. One is that I think 
even if you have quite an extreme patient philanthropy view, well, you should still be donating some amount. Mm. And it turns out that, you know, the financial assets that we are advising have just grown so much mm. in the last five years that we need to be rapidly scaling up the giving, mm. even if you think we should only be giving a small percentage and right. still accumulating. Because really, there's two updates from the success of FTX. One, I think, is obviously now there's like more total financial assets that we're advising. But secondly, also, we should probably expect there to be even more in the future as well mm. from other major donors getting involved or other successful people learning to give. And that really means that... Um, yeah, you have to okay. run just to stand still. Or yeah. you have to like, make a lot of grants just exactly, to avoid yeah. the yeah, amount. And there's this real worry. Like, you look at, let's just take the Gates Foundation as a foundation I really respect. Gates set up the Giving Pledge in about the year, I think it was 2010. Over that time, he's doubled his wealth. <laughs> and yeah. like... And I mean, he has been making a real effort. And he's been making a real effort. Yeah, I mean, they give more than, as I understand it, per year, any other foundation. Mm. I think it's about three and a half billion per year. They could have given more. And like, you know, the world is developing. Probably the best opportunities are drying up. Yeah. Um, probably they ought to have been giving more and like mm. potentially a lot more, like 10 billion per year or something. Yeah. Um, if assuming the focus is on global health and development. Mm. And that's just a real challenge. Because yeah. like even at three and a half billion per year, they're like, oh, how do we spend even more? Yeah. And so a failure mode that we could get into that I'm really worried about is just being, you know, any other foundation that ends up persisting for, you know, many, many decades and just losing out on like most impact it could have mm. in virtue of not like, you know, really trying to decisively scale up its giving. So yeah, so even getting to the point where from the patient philanthropy point of view, maybe you're at the optimal level. That's maybe that's donating a few percent per year. We've got to scale so, up and give yeah, it up. Right. <laughs> You've got a lot of work to do. Exactly. And then the second thing is just that um, the returns from movement building seem much greater than the returns from financial investment. Right. Yeah. Um, so again, just if you look at the, uh, you know, rate of return from some people going and earning to give and convincing people from that and so mm. on, it's kind of, I think, I think Ben looked into this and, Suggested it was like 30% per year or something. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, it's certainly just like much higher than one can get as a market return. Yeah. And obviously, so even if you're only focused on movement building as well, you should still be doing, as we discussed, you should still be doing a lot of like direct work because a movement that's only about growing itself is like not a very convincing or effective movement. So, yeah. I guess, yeah, a final one on the Future Fund. Do you have any interesting, exciting disagreements with Sam Bangman Fried or Nick Beckstead? It's a great question. I actually find myself remarkably aligned with Sam hmm. um, in interesting ways, including on, I mean, a couple of issues. One is this, you know, sympathy to broad long-termism. So I, mean, I think the two issues relate to each other um, quite closely. So, so one worldview you might have is just there are things that are narrowly focused on extinction risk. Hmm. And those things have a long-term impact. And basically nothing else does. And then you've got this different worldview, which Sam was espousing on his podcast, which is like, look, the world's really connected. Loads of things you can do have like indirect impact on things that then do impact the very long term. Mm. And I'm much more in the latter camp. Yeah. Um, and that's good. Again, hopefully the book gives some kind of background explanation for that. But part of that is the this kind of contingency versus convergence of values idea as well, where if you think it's really ma really matters like who's in charge, who has the power, 
at these critical junctures like development of AGI or first space exploration or formation of a world government, then loads of things change that. <laughs> yeah. And that means you can affect the long-term future in just like an enormous number of ways. Mm. Probably the biggest disagreement I'd have with Sam is like, it's a kind of a spectrum of like how cautious versus, you know, gung-ho you are. Yeah. Um, you know, Sam is Sam just very keen on being, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very keen on like building things, just making things happen. And I'm like really pretty sympathetic to that mm. um, compared to many people, but he's definitely further on the tail of that than me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Nick? Oh, yeah. And then Nick, plenty of disagreements actually, and um, also, also just have more time to talk about them. Mm. So a few recently, so one on this contingency versus convergence thing, Nick mm. is much more sympathetic to the idea of convergence than... We also have some differences in how we think about making grants. And that's something that's been like an ongoing or assessing organizations. And that's been like an interesting and ongoing conversation where I am more inclined to look at past track record and not pay that much attention to like future plans. Hmm. And whereas Nick is more inclined to me than me to like really dig into like the plans going Uh, forward. Yeah. And well, Nick, when he's on the podcast, perhaps can defend (laughs) his, his view I think partly I find it just from setting up organizations myself and being the recipient Yeah, where I'm like, look, I can make these plans. They're going to change. Probably most of the impact will come via these like weird things we don't expect. Yeah. Whereas you can look at, you know, stack record and like the people involved is right. like... That's more measurable. More measurable, exactly. So that's pretty interesting. And then there's also just a question of kind of, do you err on the side of like what is cautiousness in mm. in this current context in terms of funding? Um, is that like erring on the side of giving people more or giving people less? And I'm like, uh, I tend to be a little bit happier on the side of giving people more. Yeah. Um, but like, again, these are, these are like, these are matters of detail, but they like, they really matter for grant makings. Yeah. Okay, so we're almost done, but we got a ton of audience submitted questions for you. And I'd uh, like, to, like to throw a few of them at you, at you quickly in a kind sure. of rapid fire a session. Okay, I'll, I'll try my best to be brief. Yeah, what's your take on the idea that we should give special priority to S risks or like uh, possible futures in which there's a lot of suffering rather than just, you know, nothing? Yeah, I think it depends exactly on what you mean by special priority. Mm. So I think you should, I definitely think we should give more priority to it than in some sense of a world that has an equal quantity of happiness. Mm. So under model uncertainty, uh, you've got kind of, say, classical utilitarian view, which would say that, you know, it's, let's say it's defining one unit of happiness and one unit of suffering. And there's a reasonable case to think that on the classical utilitarian view, we should think like the best possible futures as good as the worst possible future is bad. Hmm. But we shouldn't be extremely confident in that. There are plausible views in which you should give more weight to suffering um, or in general to worst case outcomes. Hmm. So you could be risk averse too. You could also have a prioritarian view, which, yeah, depending on exactly how you model it, can give extra weight to um, very worst lives. So I think we should take that into account too. But then what happens? Well, you end up with kind of a mix between the two. Yeah. So supposing you were 50-50 between classical utilitarian view and just like strict negative utilitarian view. Mm. Um, well, then I think on the natural way of making the comparison between the two views, you give suffering twice as much weight as you otherwise would. I think that's like a pretty reasonable <laughs> yeah. kind of conclusion to come to. My own, I mean, it's something that's pretty interesting to interrogate is like, if you ask yourself, like, what trade-offs would you in fact make if you're like, you've got these yeah, I mean, um, decisions ahead of you, like some chance of heaven and some chance of hell, like at what 
at what probability are you indifferent? Like, yeah, I mean, I feel very risk averse about that sort of thing. I mean, I suppose like in, in, I mean, I still feel quite risk averse even in like more normal cases where it's like you have a great day or a terrible day. You get more and more risk averse the more extreme the case. Yeah. Yeah. And so that does suggest that there's just also like, yeah, this common sense argument for caring more about avoiding the downsides than getting the upsides. Um, putting all of that together, I think it gives like, so I think like there's some arguments on which S risk are all that matters, but I think you only get that if you assign like very high credence to, you know, a pretty narrow range of moral views. Mm. Um, whereas if you also have credence on the views on which positives count a lot as well, then you get more like this kind of mixed, mixed view where you give some extra weight to downsides compared to upsides. I think this does give, yeah, some extra weight for uh, trajectory changes versus mm. extinction risk reduction, but not like overwhelming importance. Yeah. So I guess for, for the rest of the year, you've kind of got the the book and the, and the future fund are going to be pretty time absorbing. But like, yeah, what do you think you might be working on in two or three or four years time? Yeah. So it's still a great question. I mean, I do think, yeah, I think there's two things that kind of weigh on me. One is I do just really enjoy, you know, getting very kind of bright, you know, younger people kind of engaged in these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that like personally very motivating and inspiring. Yeah. It's like people have to have a whole life behind them and they've got this youthful energy and stuff. So, yeah. and I feel like often like relatively low amounts of effort can really help people and put just them on the right path. I feel like we should get you in like very occasionally to be like a one-on-one career advisor and people mm. could just like randomly get Will as their advisor perhaps <laughs> if that's if that's energizing for I, you. I used to do career advice and I mm. loved it. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So that's kind of one thing. And it's also just like, you know, given my views about the world, just growing the number of people who are, you know, morally serious and intellectually curious who are mm. trying to make the world better. It's just like plausibly the most important thing. Yeah. And then the second thing is, well, what's the thing that I feel is lacking most? And I think that is just, I call it weird macro strategy research, but mm. I should come up with a better name <laughs> than that. Better branding. Yeah. Um, but Holden has this post, most important research questions for the most important century, mm. some title like that. And he's just like, he's focusing in particular on AI. Mm. Um, and he's more negative on issues that are a bit broader than that. At least for the bit that's saying like, look, it is super important to have more people working on this and the style of investigation he's encouraging, which are like, is just, it is actually kind of bold, ambitious research where you're not just saying, hey, I'm just going to look at one case study and just pass that to everyone. Instead, it's like, I'm trying to develop a view here, Mm, like mm. a a real view on AI timelines or the importance of who develops AGI versus like uh, AI, risk for misaligned AI or like, how fast should we expect an AI takeoff to be? Just like, I'm going to try and have a view on this and defend it. Mm. Um, and I'm going to go really deep as well. And he points out just very few people are doing this. Like yeah. people often say like, oh, the EA is just full of researchers, but like not that many people are doing that sort of research. And it just seems enormously important to me. Mm. And so like, yeah, that was just one of my favorite forum posts that I've read in a long time. I'd go like, yeah, I would go a bit broader than Holden. He was kind of more critical of attempts to find cause X or have crucial considerations, basically on the grounds that it's really hard and he didn't expect people to succeed. (laughs) Um, I agree it's hard and people probably won't succeed, but well, this whole conversation has been about like, well, the payoff (laughs) would be like very large. Um, So at least I'm more sympathetic to that. Though I don't really feel I want to claim it's more important than some of the AI topics that he was talking about. And then there's another one which was trying to form your own worldview, mm. where 
I think there I feel even more sympathetic to wanting to defend the worldview hmm. um, thing. I just find it's like... What, what so, do you mean by that? Um, there, I think it's like even broader than just tackling one of these questions like AI takeoff speeds or AI timelines. But instead, it's having a pretty broad view kind of of everything. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a little hard to convey. Mm. Um, Carl Schulman is the person that I think most has this. Most embodies that, yeah. Um, but he manages to have like both incredible breadth and depth. Yeah. Um, uh, He's a special guy. But I think it's because just, you know, since he was a teenager, he was just like, I want to figure out how the world works and what's most important and like, mm. how it all fits together. And like how many people are trying to do with that in the world? Like truly? Almost none. It's like extremely out of fashion in academia. Mm. There's very few people who have the kind of opportunity to do that. And I, I just think, I don't know, I do think it just has enormous yeah, potential uh, yeah, upside. Or... Enormous potential upside. And so putting both of those things together, yeah, one idea that, yeah, I do come back to, um, and Leopold Eschenbrenner in particular has recently been pushing me on, is like, yeah, having my own university or research institute mm. combined, I know, do both of those things. Oh, yeah. Where you um, find people to come up with their own worldview or like really, yeah, really yeah. dig deep. Okay. So wow. yeah, yeah. So you'd like find like like super, super promising people at an early stage yeah. um, rather than, you know, they come to this rather than like standard university. Like, All right, you've and got then, 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that would be an extreme version of it, but yeah. um, there's a really difficult incentives question yeah. where on the one hand, like the best research just does take a long time. Mm. But on the other hand, you don't want to just simply say like, okay, yeah, you're now funded forever. Yeah, but in a, but you could have some like some people are super structure. intrinsically motivated by this. And yeah, I think you would have to be in order to stick with it. Yeah, for sure. But then you could also have it where like most people go off, like don't mm. you know pursue that kind of research path. And so yeah, that's something I could imagine myself kind of getting very excited by. And so yeah, something I think about. Um, other obvious paths are like more kind of, kind of public intellectual work, perhaps you know working more with Future Fund, you know, maybe like more books. Yeah. Um, another one is that I feel a bit of urge towards is like, yeah, really going deep on AI as well. Mm. Um, it's kind of the in thing to do, so, you know? <laughs> no, finally succumbed. Yeah. I know, I've, I've tried to help, hold off for so long. But um, it just is, yeah, it just like is very important in expectation. It's also where like a lot of focus of the community, um, of many other researchers is at the moment. It's something where I'm like, there's just lots of things I feel confused about, especially what's coming out of the search area. And I'm like, oh, I just... Yeah. So it feels like these open threads that I like really want to dig into. And I, I'm always like, oh, it's not quite, you know... Yeah. It's not the thing I should be doing. Um, but so those are, yeah, some of the things most on my mind. Yeah, I guess. So listeners are dying to know, um, what is it with you and, and potatoes? I just think they're neat. <laughs> <laughs> um, this might be a little so... <laughs> bit of a joke. I think when I say listeners are dying to know, I mean two listeners. But two yeah. listeners. <laughs> So yeah, this did come up at the last year Global London. Hmm. Um, so yeah, during, I think it was like May, June, 2020, the kind of peak of lockdown madness. Yeah. In I was working hard in the book and I was often going down kind of rabbit holes that uh, were often very useful. But one I went down was the history of the potato hmm. and the potato's long-term impact. <laughs> and an early draft of my book, of the book, had a lot of potato-related <laughs> content. People didn't mostly, really like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's mostly just a book about potatoes <laughs> at this point. Yeah. I do now own many books about potatoes. Yeah. Um, and it all it stemmed from... So the potato was one of the most important transformative technologies of all time. Yeah. Um, Tell me more. Where, well, um, 
when it was first imported to Europe from South America, it's actually, it was regarded with quite a lot of skepticism mm. because people thought that it would give you leprosy because the skin was, um, uh, look, like look, look like, yeah, looked like the skin of a leper. Um, but it was also just like a radically new sort of vegetable. Mm. And so it took a while to take off. But then those areas that were suitable for potato-based um, agriculture and started using it, well, there's, there's one study that suggests that it had, they had radically more urbanization and population growth. Mm. So it had basically you could get three times as many calories per acre from the potato as you could from... Um, from wheat? Or yeah, from, from wheat. Wow. Um, or It's just so fast growing or just so, so efficient at converting sunlight into calories. Yeah, basically. Huh. Um, and it's also quite close to a superfood. So yeah. there's this paper, it's by Nathan Nunn and one co-author, um, it has a section, and it's like got thousands of citations in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. Yeah. And it's like section two, the virtues of the potato. <laughs> <laughs> it's like comparing potatoes to turnips. So um, yeah, potatoes, you can, at least if you're an agricultural worker, requiring more calories per day, you can live on nothing but buttery mashed potatoes. Mm. Um, so In reasonable health? In reasonable health, yeah. Um, so you get all the relevant nutrients um, apart from vitamin D and K, which you can get from milk. Mm. Um, you also need occasional supplement of like lentils or oats for mm. the molybdenum. Um, but basically, <laughs> to a first approximation, yeah, buttery mashed potatoes can just be your, your life. Yeah. And so, yeah, it seemed to be actually just very good nutritionally as well. Huh. So it's kind of, the joke I started making was, it was kind of, you can draw the analogies between the potato and AI. Because it was this like discontinuous um, technological advancement that, yeah. in some ways, Suddenly was more general like... than previous <laughs> um, than uh, yeah previous vegetables. But it was also the cursively self-improving, <laughs> oh, because we kept selecting the best potatoes. Well, no, but, well, yeah. because you could um, by growing potatoes, it actually was also very good feed for livestock, uh -huh. um, which produced manure, which allowed you to put, um, make uh, many more, more potatoes. <laughs> And uh, were you thinking Just, that's a bit of a stretch? <laughs> well, I was thinking how many cycles of improvement do you get out you of do, that? You do so, plateau. Yeah. But I think that is also, um, that is relevant where, um, right. you know, well, that the could curse, happen with exactly, AI, the yeah. curse, you know, getting a bit of um, self-improvement doesn't mean you go forever mm. necessarily. Yeah, totally. Um, you, can, you can plateau. And it is relevant for thinking about automation kind of more generally or like productivity improvements more generally where, um, agriculture in general, we've had these like enormous productivity gains and automation. Mm. And actually that's meant that agriculture has become a much smaller part of the economy rather than a bigger one, because like, it's the stuff that's like hard to automate, but essential that ends up becoming kind of the bottleneck and swells to become the whole economy. Yeah. Um, and that could well happen with AI as well. And there's this like economic model on, you know, how this might go and how that could be like a bottleneck to kind of singularity-esque growth. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, people thought it was a little flippant. <laughs> right. <laughs> Didn't make it into the final cut. I think there's almost no mentions of potatoes in the, in the know, book. Sadly, so, sadly yeah. it's all gone. Okay, but um, yeah. I have been approached for people asking for it for the, um, perhaps a standalone article. So maybe it will yeah. still see the light of day. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit, I have commissioned the search onto this because um, the other part of the issue is like the core persistent study. Oh, mm. yeah, I did a little bit of. So if you take the persistent study and then just extrapolate it out, mm. then. If the potato had never been imported, had never existed, or hadn't been imported to Europe, a billion fewer people would be alive today. Wow! Okay. Wow! But so the it, question kind of, is, kind of makes it surprising that the civilizations in the Americas, yeah, weren't more powerful or were more populous. And 
Yeah. Like, I mean, if it's so much more efficient at producing calories, you'd think that would be a huge advantage in terms of getting economies of scale and being at the at the forefront of technological development. Yeah. I mean, that's actually kind of a good, maybe a good argument for some amount of skepticism about the right. study. Okay, yeah. so, <laughs> right. uh, so I have asked um, Jaime to, yeah, look, at, look into it because I'm confident the effect size will not be as large as it actually is in the, yeah. as is stated in the paper. Yeah. And then is it zero? I'm not sure. Um, okay, well, we're out of time, but our traditional last question is, uh, do you have three books about potatoes that you can recommend to listeners? <laughs> um, I'll have to get back to you, but okay, cool. there was a book called The Potato King mm. that my team got me. Yeah. Um, at, at, uh, at at original the, edition, first edition? Original, yeah, sadly not. <laughs> um, and we did once have a party that was potato-themed where everyone dressed in kind of potato sacks <laughs> that, we, that we made into various costumes um so that so, was that was yes. my pandemic <laughs> <laughs> we've all changed in our own way um all right we'll be back soon with another interview about what we owe the future but for now yeah thanks for coming back on the Eighty Thousand hours podcast will cool thanks for having me though a few little factual corrections to make on this one um, Will gave some thanks to people who contributed to the book, which is always a risky proposition as you can easily forget someone in the list. Uh, and in this case, he omitted Laura Pomarius, who was his chief of staff before Max took over. Will mentioned Eric Williams' book, Capitalism and Slavery, uh, and said that that came out in the 50s, but actually it came out in the 40s. He also mentioned the Gates Foundation currently giving out about $3.5 billion in grants a year, but apparently at the moment they are currently giving out more like $6 billion a year. For my part, I got my dates about Jainism wrong. Jainism's origins are a bit hard to pin down, but the religion probably originates more like 500 to 800 BC rather than 4000 BC, which is what I suggested. For a religion that might go back that far, you'd probably have to turn to the ancient Egyptians, and even that might be pushing it. Oh well, what's a few millennia between friends? If things go to plan, which once in a while they do, the next of my interviews to go out will actually be on the 80k after hours feed rather than this one. That will be a conversation with two expert forecasters about how they go about predicting interstate conflict ahead of time and what's hot in the predicting the future scene at the moment. If that sounds at all interesting to you, uh, go and subscribe to ADK After Hours wherever you get this show. And just a reminder about the book giveaway I mentioned in the intro. If you'd like a free copy of either The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity by Toby Ord, or 80,000 Hours, Find a Fulfilling Career That Does Good by Benjamin Todd, or Doing Good Better, Effective Altruism and How You Can Make a Difference by today's guest Will, then you can go and get it at 80,000hours.org slash freebook in exchange for joining our weekly email newsletter. Or in exchange for subscribing and Insta unsubscribing. That is also cool. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.